With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. North Carolina. Wilmington is the site of the only coup d'etat in U.S. history. In 1898, a mob of armed white supremacists torched the offices of the local black newspaper, killed many African-American residents, and overthrew the elected government. The coup went unpunished by the federal government. The only black daily newspaper in town was at the center of the massacre. The Wilmington Daily Record published an editorial a few months before that overthrow in response to a speech that advocated for the lynching of black men who protect white men to protect white women. The article argued that it is possible to have a consensual relationship between a black man and a white woman. John Jeremiah Sullivan zeroed in on the history of the newspaper as part of a larger research project on the 1898 coup. He's a writer for the New York Times Magazine, based in Wilmington, and joins me now from partner station WHQR. John, welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Tell me what drew you to this uh, this history of the Daily Record. Well, we it was you know part of a larger um, research project we were working on, having to do with 1898 in general and with the the coup and the massacre that that followed, uh, in which an, an unknown number of african-american people were were murdered here in wilmington and so what was um, it well tell me about what did the daily record project look like once you got it started well we were we were fascinated because we kept um you know seeing these mentions of of the newspaper in um writing about 1898 and in published writing about the massacre and coup and, and there would always be a sentence along the lines of sadly no copies survive um, in, in reference to the daily record. And, and the longer we kept at it, the more that just started to seem impossible that, 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 that there would be no surviving copies. And of course the newspaper is so important, um, to everything that, that, that happened in that year. Um, not only was it at the center of the, 
of the coup and and the massacre. In fact, the first person killed that day was killed right in front of the of the newspaper building. Um, it was also central to the way events developed over the course of that year because Alexander Manley's editorial, Alexander Manley was the editor, um, his editorial on uh, uh, interracial um, sexual and romantic relationships had, had done so much to, to, to foment the atmosphere in, in Wilmington. But it was it, it, there was a third thing that fascinated us, which was more positive in a way, which was just that the Daily Record had been uh, one of the best really kind of a shining um, symbol of what the African-American community in Wilmington had become prior to the massacre. Yeah, maybe I'm going to ask you to stop there and give us the picture of Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898 when this white supremacist mob, led by some of the leading citizens of the state of North Carolina, white citizens, I I might add, uh, launched this coup d'etat. Tell me about Wilmington. Well, you had this thing happening called fusion politics in North Carolina at the time. It's really interesting and um, and still uh, not n- not as widely known as it as it should be. And Wilmington was um, was the capital, n- not not the true capital of the state at that time, but was was the the center of fusion politics. And this was an explicitly interracial political movement that was born from a fusion, hence the name, of, of uh, white populists, many of whom were from the, from the outlying counties, and black Republicans. Uh, Republicans in general, many of whom at that time were, were African-American. Of course, we have, to, we have to keep in mind that the liberal conservative polarity is switched, right? Mm-hmm. So the Republicans are the progressive party at, the, at this time, and the Democrats are the, are the um, conservative one. So the Fusion Party was was an interracial party that was trying to um, trying to undo the old democratic order, which was which was the um, you know the what was left of the slaveocracy, and they were they were making strides and winning elections, especially in 1896. They had a lot of success, and the Democrats um, got. They, they they picked up on the fact that this was um, this was the end of the old order, and decided that they they had to put an end to it. And if, if they couldn't stop it by legal means, they would um, they would resort to violence. That or that assault on democracy was vital to white supremacy then, and uh, perhaps even today, uh, with voter suppression and some of the other things that we see happening. But we're going to stick with Wilmington. Because one of the reasons that this is all happening in Wilmington is because it isn't, its economy is not based on the old slaveocracy. There is a brand new economy. It is the most prosperous city in North Carolina at the time. It is a majority black. There is a large middle class that thrives not on agriculture but on trade and business. It's a new North Carolina, and it needed a new politics, and about the only way to stop it was an assault on democracy and a coup d'etat. So it's a fascinating moment in North Carolina history and, of course, fomented by a pillar of democracy, a free press. So you are now looking for some of these papers, the the actual daily record that printed these columns and, uh, as you say, got people somewhat agitated. You ended up finding seven copies of the daily record. Where'd you find them? Three of them were on microfilm at the Schomburg Center for the for the study of black culture in New York City. 
I think those were the first we found. And, um, and there is one copy at the State Archives in Raleigh. Um, and that, that's the actual issue containing Manley's editorial, the editorial that um, made so much trouble. It was, it was described as scandalous. Of course, we read it now, and it's almost hard to understand how it, how it could have been. But the white supremacists were able to use it to whip up, um, to whip up violence um, in the months leading up to the, the election in 1898. They reprinted it over and over in, in um, other newspapers kept it in front of people's faces and um and then a really wonderful thing that happened we early on in the project we got a call from the cape fear museum the the local history museum here in town from the staff historian there a woman named jan davidson who had heard about the project and said we have three copies of the daily record in in our archives and um and that was um that was special because you know we were working with these groups of eighth graders, middle school students, and um, yeah. Well, tell me more. Tell me to, more about that. About bringing the eighth grade students into this project. It um, it started that way early on. I'm not sure how um, how we settled on that age group. It may have been the coincidence that my my older daughter Maria was was in middle school herself at the time. Um, but we um, we started meeting with them once a week with groups of students from three schools here in town, two public and one private, and um, and just kind of presented them with this historical problem. In some ways, a conveniently tidy historical problem. You have this you have this major event in American history, the Cuban Massacre of eighteen ninety eight. You have this publication that is at the center of it in every way, and the publication is, is, is gone. It's been erased. Um, and in fact, we know, I should say, we, we know that, um, that there, there were deliberate measures taken to, to erase the daily records. So, so some of the democratic, which is to say white supremacist newspapers here in Wilmington published advertisements saying we'll pay 10 cents or 25 cents per copy of the daily record. So they're buying them up and, um, and presumably destroying them. Mm. Which is which is one reason why they were so hard to find. But so we were able to say to the students, you know, here here's this this important piece, and it has been missing, and now we have some copies. So let's read them. Let's let's find out what they say, what was going on, how much can be reconstructed of that that um, again that that thriving community that had existed before and just up to the massacre. And of course, all we knew up until then, or most of what we knew, was uh, because of reprints or quotes in other papers, including white supremacist publications that uh, somehow maintained a piece of the record when uh, many of the actual artifacts were gone. That's right. It's an irony of this of this research that um, a lot of times you're you're reliant on the white supremacist white supremacist sources because they're they're attacking the Daily Record and its politics, and and quoting long stretches of it in their own articles as a way of saying, can you believe what these people are writing? But unwittingly, they're they're preserving a lot of copies. So we've actually put together a an eighth copy, what we're calling the remnants issue of the Daily Record, and that's made up entirely of material that survived by having been uh, reproduced in other newspapers and magazines at well, the time. I want to bring another guest into this conversation who can put this project into the larger context of the black press. Cash Michaels is a journalist who writes for publications around North Carolina. Welcome back, Cash. Good to be with you. 
Tell us about the importance of the Daily Record at the turn of the nineteenth or turn of the twentieth century. If I'm not mistaken, the Daily Record was perhaps um, uh, one of just two, if I have that right. And, and John is good to uh, be on with you, and you, you correct me where I'm wrong because you know your project better than I do. Uh, but I believe there were just two daily African-American newspapers in, in the country at the time. So to have a black newspaper, uh, particularly as, as you correctly indicated, Wilmington was the de facto uh, capital of North Carolina because of uh, it was a port city. And so it was thriving economically. The, um, uh, the African-American community there uh, was just not only proficient as far as business is concerned, but, but um, government, um, uh, property owners. Uh, the arts, a lot of artisans, uh, uh, the legal profession, etc. So it, it it was a capital, no question, and and uh, it was a majority black uh, uh, city, and it was a target. The uh, white supremacist uh, leaders of the state uh, felt that it was a symbol of something they did not want, and uh, I think someone said something about they um, they sought uh, legal means to uh, no. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted to wipe them out, period. <laughs> well, it gives lie to the theory of white supremacy. This was the, the objection to, the, uh, to supporting Haiti and its independence earlier in the century. Uh, again, Southern Democrats opposed that because if the lie of white supremacy is we're better and all of a sudden we've got the best city in, in the city showing us up, you need to put a stop to that. Yeah, exactly. And, and so uh, Wilmington was, was a place to be proud of. And there were um, uh, uh, lawmakers uh, from Wilmington who were very well respected, very well known. Uh, and you, you just had anything good that was happening in the black community in North Carolina most likely had um, uh, uh, links to Wilmington, if not from Lim- Wilmington itself. You know, John, I want to talk to you about some of the details of, of what you're finding as well as we kind of put this whole piece uh, historical piece together. Uh, you include, uh, there's a Charles Chestnut story that was included in some of the, Charles Chestnut, of course, a great writer, uh, African-American who is uh, from North Carolina and uh, who did a lot of his writing here. Uh, talk about that and just that find. Yeah, it's it's amazing. There's almost a kind of um, a Pompeii aspect sometimes to, to, to looking at this material from, from the decade leading up to the coup, because when when the African American community here was destabilized as as violently as it was in 1898, there was so much cultural memory lost at the same time, and um, and and that has been in in some ways the most interesting part of the project is is resurrecting that earlier world a little bit and realizing just how um, sophisticated and and advanced it had become. I mean, there was really a um, it's not an exaggeration to say that there was a, an, an African-American literary scene here in Wilmington with weekly meetings. They would have these Friday night literary gatherings and poems and stories were being produced. And and that was one of the interesting things to find out about the Daily Record itself was that Manley was running um, fiction. He was running short stories and, and poems, and, and that was a, that was a, a new... A new fact for us that the Daily Record had possessed this literary dimension, and it, it, you know, it just it just throws into relief how much was destroyed. Cash Michaels, what does the black press uh, landscape look like today in Wilmington? We'll start there. Well, let me let, let me uh, just interject this before I answer that question, and I think John can can pick up on this um, uh, through his research, uh, which is an, an extraordinary project. 
uh, they were able to find an editorial. And, and John, if I'm not mistaken, I believe you're not sure whether Man- Manley wrote this, but it seems likely, where he wrote an editorial, I think, in October of 1898, um, mm-hmm. in effect uh, saying that even though he had already uh, begun hearing rumors that uh, uh, weapons were being brought into uh, to Wilmington for the express purpose of, of uh, causing uh, uh, violence and damage and, and destruction in the black community, that he just could not believe. He just simply could not believe that the white power structure there would, would stoop to that level. This was in October of 1898. And, uh, and mind you, he was very explicit in what he was writing, too. We're hearing that guns are coming yeah. in, this, so forth, you know. Um, and and yet he said, I'm hearing all this, and I don't. I just don't believe that the leadership here would would do such a thing. I, I think more of them than that. And John, I, I think you can pick up from from that point because I think uh, that's something you showed me. I think believe in I believe in February or January of this year, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it, it was something that uh, was extraordinary uh, per your discovery. It's um. Yeah, it's it's really a, a tragic document of of American history, um, and that you're, you're right. It was October of 1898 when that editorial was published, and yes, Man, Manley is 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 talking to his people. He's talking to his community, to to the African American community here in Wilmington, and and um, people who are reading it in other parts of the state, and saying, "Listen, they would never be that crazy. Don't let them scare you. They're just talking this way." because they want to keep us home on election day. But don't forget that these people are our neighbors and that we do business with them and we live next door to one another. And, and uh, they, they would just, they, they would never dare to, uh, to resort to the kind of violence that's being, that's being hinted at. And um, it's, it, it's hard to read it almost knowing how, how wrong he was on the facts, but 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 how right in spirit. I mean, he he, yeah. he was speaking as a true, as, as a truly dem- democratically minded person. Yeah. You know. Go check it out. It's just a friendly game of baseball. 1963 was a turning point for the U.S. And as much as it was complicated for the country, it was all the more intense for one particular 13-year-old girl. Her name is Sharon Robinson. She is the only daughter of the legendary baseball player, Jackie Robinson. Here's a bit of what 1963 sounded like to her. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Nineteen sixty-three was a swirl of teenagedom, divisive politics, and sometimes complicated family dynamics. Sharon Robinson writes about all that in her new memoir, Child of the Dream. She joins us now in our studio. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Elsa. That was an incredible introduction. (laughs) It brought me right back to 1963, the music and the words. (laughs) Well, I want want people to be able to picture your life in 1963. Mm. I mean, you were one of only two black girls in your entire school, right? By 1963. Right. And, and, And reading the book, it was clear that 
the kind of racism you had to contend with was much more subtle than the racism that your dad had to contend with as a baseball player. Why was it hard for you to tell your father about what kids were saying to you? I mean, because you didn't tell him about it till way later. Because it seemed so minor in comparison to what the kids in the South were going through. Yeah. And we saw that on the television. So therefore, like, why bring up, you know, name calling? We didn't talk about bullying back then Mm -hmm. or think of it as even bullying. So I I didn't realize what impact it was even having on me at the time. And so I'm really looking back as I got older and realized, oh, yeah, that's why I was so shy in school. Yeah. There's this really, really sweet moment when you were listening to records with your best friend, Candy, Candy, who's also African-American. And you're trying to connect with your idea of what it means to be black through music. You're listening to these Motown records. And when I was reading that part, it made me feel like, wow, this girl feels disconnected from what it means to be black. Jackie Robinson's daughter feels disconnected. I did. I I was very happy as a little, as a young child, you know, in my white world. You know, I had my horse. I had my best friend, Christy, who lived down the street. But I realized when we were turning 12 that something was very wrong here, and I had to pull away from this white world in order to be a part of the black world. And I really wanted that. Well, because of your dad's fame, you had a front row seat to the civil rights movement in a way the vast majority of 13-year-olds in the Northeast in 1963 did not. Your family hosted jazz concerts at your house to raise money. Martin Luther King Jr. came for a visit. In a way, it felt like the civil rights movement was delivered to your doorstep, but you were still shielded from the most terrifying aspects of it. Did that make it harder for you to figure out how you fit into the struggle? Um, these kids were my age, and, and I found it um, frightening. I found it exciting. I wanted to I wanted to be a part of that and not, you know, sort of isolated in Connecticut where we were doing our own thing, but you know, no one talked about it or paid much attention to what we were doing. Yeah. And I sort of envied these kids that they they had each other and they were part of something bigger than themselves because we knew that that's what we we should be at working towards. Were you frustrated with your father when he wouldn't let you go down to Birmingham in March? You know, I was I wasn't frustrated so much as like, well, when is it when do we get connected, you know? Um when I'm watching these children, I felt you know sick, sick in my stomach, you know that I, I was frightened for them. Mm, yeah. And um and also very proud of them. But I didn't know how it was going to turn out. You know, all I saw was them going to jail. Mm-hmm. And then we'd go back the next night and watch it on television again. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going to happen to these kids, you know? And so I was, I continued to be worried about them until my father came back from Birmingham finally and could give me a more full report. Well, did you meet any of the kids? You know, what's happening? What's, you know, are they going to be punished? Are they out of jail? Are they safe? And that's when he gave us an action. Right. He came back and said, we're going to start doing fundraisers at our home. And you kids are going to be as much a part of that fundraising as, you know, um, your mom and I are, are going to be. And everyone will have a role and the money we raise will go back to Birmingham or wherever the money is needed in the civil rights movement. And 
that first jazz concert, I got it. We, I mean, we worked hard, and it was an incredible experience, but we also produced money. Yeah. There you are, getting the hot dogs ready, the hot dog buns, the sodas, the plates, and just give me an idea of what it was like to be in it. When we're getting up in the morning to to clean our rooms and get it ready for the artists, we're also wondering, well, maybe Dr. King will see my room, you know? So, <laughs> so you, <laughs> you know, it's it very, extra good. Extra good, you know. It's very, and then we didn't also know what it was going to be like, you know, whether he was going to be a distant figure, and even though he's in the house, you know, whether we would be introduced to him, but then, you know, we he wouldn't have anything to say to us. And then to, Dr. King acknowledges us. And looks to us and says, you know, t- t- calls us foot soldiers. And I don't think I really knew what foot soldiers were at that point. But you it know. sounded really important. But it sounded like, you know, we are marching. You know, <laughs> we are part of this march. <laughs> so you have written several kids' books now. Why write this particular book at this point in time? Why choose only this moment in 1963? I thought it would be helpful for kids to understand that children had a voice in the civil rights movement yeah. and that helped change the tide, helped us get the passage of the um, the Civil Rights Act. Right. And turning 13 is, to me, was, you know, such a big deal. Right. You know, it was really a big deal. So I wanted to... I mean, it was the year you had your first kiss, but also the year kiss. the civil rights yes. movement had launched, at least in your consciousness. Exactly. So um, it was just wonderful to be able to pair these things. I felt, oh, this, you know, this is important for kids to know that I didn't, you know, now I come to your classrooms and you see me as a confident and accomplished woman, but I didn't, that didn't just happen. You know, I had my own trajectory and and I wanted to share that with kids. Sharon Robinson's new book is called Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Top black athletes choose historically black colleges and universities over predominantly white ones. Jamel Hill makes that argument in an essay in The Atlantic. She says it would benefit not just the colleges, but also the communities around them and just maybe those student athletes too. Jamel Hill, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So the case you're making is... Black athletes bring all kinds of money, all kinds of attention to the often predominantly white universities that recruit and showcase them. And meanwhile, historically, black colleges are struggling. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a a, a basic blueprint that I make. You know, looking at the shape of HBCUs who, generally speaking, do not have large endowments, why not take your talent to these HBCUs and kind of rebuild these historic uh, institutions? I I get why this could be great for historically black colleges and universities uh, if black athletes took their talent and the money that follows them there. Why would this be good for the black athletes? Right now, it wouldn't be because a lot of the HBCUs, they don't have the facilities, the infrastructure. And it is unfair because we're talking about 17, 18, 19 year olds. So you would need a group, frankly, a, a, a whole exodus of athletes who would think a little forwardly in order for this to happen because making a collective the, decision, yeah, let's all do this and take our collective bargaining power. It, it can't be one or two because one or two is not enough to help to rebuild 
these schools, the communities around them. And I think what will be a trickle down effect into strengthening the black middle class with a very solvent, steady, stable financial base, I think is just a, a huge benefit all around. When it comes to black athletes, though, you, you quote one in your piece who sums up the counter argument to yours pretty eloquently. This is uh Kayvon Thibodeau, the top high school football prospect, uh, he visited Florida A&M, and it was a huge stir that he had visited a a black college, uh, but he ended up at University of Oregon. And the quote, uh, I'll read it unless you want to, he said, nobody wants to eat McDonald's when you can get filet mignon. As I said, like, I don't think there's any question that there is a difference between a University of of Oregon and a FAMU. Facilities, just everything. The exposure, I'm thinking, in terms of somebody who might be good enough to go pro. The exposure would be the least of, uh, to me, the least of the issues because there are players in the NFL and the NBA who went to black colleges right now and they were found. And I think that's part of the mentality that some of these young athletes have. They think the schools make them. Teams want to get better and they want to go where the talent is. And it's the same with television networks. They follow where the audience goes and where the talent is. And so from an exposure standpoint, I I don't think there's any question that the exposure would certainly follow them. Is there any precedent for what you're advocating? Has there ever been a group of rising college athletes who banded together and made a collective decision in this way? Not to go to a black college, but probably one of the more famous examples is the Fab Five. Jalen Rose and Chris Webber, um, you know, both are from Detroit. They got to know the other members of the Fab Five, you know, uh, Juwan Howard, Ray Jackson, and Jimmy King, and five freshmen went to University of Michigan and changed college basketball. And I don't see why that couldn't happen for an HBCU. So while, you know, I know uh, I was speaking from a a standpoint of like utter utopia because it's a little (laughs) bit more more challenging than that. But I I do think it's possible. Your piece has kicked up a big fuss on Twitter and beyond. I've seen some critics saying this amounts to an argument for voluntary segregation. What do you say to that? Uh, I think those people don't know very much about HBCUs um, because HBCUs have never been segregated, okay, ever. White people could always go there. White people could always go there. There are white people that go there right now Mm -hmm. a lot. There are white quarterbacks and white football players and basketball players playing for HBCUs. What I'm saying is moving the base of power to uh, an HBCU. And what's interesting, especially because so many conservatives have had something to say and have called me a, a segregationist, even a racist, is that now, correct me if I'm wrong, but conservatives, especially when it comes to talking about the black community, they're always telling black people to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, right? Always saying that. So I actually suggest an idea that basically is rooted in that. And suddenly I'm a racist. I find that to be highly ironic. That's Jamel Hill, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you guys for having me. In the Bahamas, thousands of people were left homeless by Hurricane Dorian. The storm was a great leveler, both physically and socioeconomically. It struck down the seaside mansions of the rich as well as the shanties of the poor. But recovering from disaster is especially difficult for people who are struggling to get by to begin with. One of the neighborhoods that was hardest hit in Marsh Harbor on Abaco Island was home to thousands of immigrants, many of them from Haiti. NPR's Jason Bobian reports that migrants have been some of the most desperate in the days after Dorian passed. 
During the worst of Hurricane Dorian, 42-year-old John Noel says ocean water poured into the shanty town where he lived and quickly flooded his house. After 10, 15 minutes, the water just come up, bop, 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 way higher than the window. Going, the water come through the window, come everywhere. And after that, we got to walk. The door, we was inside the house, we can't open the, open the door. We got to climb up off the window to get off the room. The sustained winds of 185 miles per hour were firing pieces of sheet metal and tree limbs through the air. Noel says he and his girlfriend clung to the top of a 10-foot-tall iron gate to keep from getting washed away. He says he believed he was about to die. Only God could save our life. The neighborhood, known as the Mud, where he used to live, is now a field of debris with not a single building still standing. Thousands of people, most of the migrants, lived here, and the death toll in this neighborhood is thought to have been immense. Since the storm, Noel has been sleeping in a Catholic church. He says there's no way that he can stay in Marsh Harbor, and what he really wants right now is to go back to Haiti. You can't do nothing. They have to clean that and do plenty of stuff. So the thing is we need to get a move from there and go now, so buy our own ticket and go home. That's it. At the dock in Marsh Harbor, hundreds of people, many of them Haitians, are waiting for what's known as the mail boat to Nassau. It's a fairly large ferry that, in addition to the mail, also carries shipping containers and passengers who normally can't afford to fly between Nassau and Marsh Harbor. During a tour of the hurricane devastation, Bahamian Prime Minister Hubert Minnis stopped by the dock and addressed the crowd of people desperately trying to leave the island. He assured Haitians that they will get just as much disaster assistance as locals. All of you. All of you will be treated with respect, so do not be afraid of my government. All of you will be treated equally. There's no discrimination here. We are all one. Yet even the prime minister's words underscored how marginalized Haitians and other migrants have been here. Julio Ortiz from the Dominican Republic had been working in Marsh Harbor for six months when Hurricane Dorian hit. For nearly a week after the storm crashed into the Bahamas, he hadn't been able to get in touch with his wife back home. We lend him a phone. He says the cell phones haven't been working, there's no internet. He doesn't speak English and hadn't been able to get a message to his family. He says it's a relief for him and his wife now that she knows he survived the storm. Ortiz came to the Bahamas to work and to make money. On this day, he's scavenging through a pile of hurricane debris, trying to find a propane gas bottle to hook up a stove. He hasn't worked since the storm, and with most businesses damaged and shut down from Dorian, it may be weeks, months, or even longer before Ortiz can find more work. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Marsh Harbor, Bahamas. Hurricane Dorian not only left many people without homes in the Bahamas, it also left the students at the University of the Bahamas without a northern campus. But one college here in the U.S. has opened its doors to those students. Hampton University is a historically black school in Virginia, and it's decided to pay tuition and room and board for these Bahamian students for one semester. To tell us about those plans, we're joined now by the president of Hampton University, William Harvey. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. So tell me how you arrived at this decision to spend this kind of money to help these students. I mean, we're talking about, what, around $20,000 per student here? Well, the president of the University of Bahamas, uh, Dr. Rodney Smith, is my former vice president. And one evening, uh, I called him just to ask how he and his wife and family were doing. He told me they were doing fine, but that his North Campus had almost been obliterated. Mm. 
So I thought about that overnight, and the next morning I called him and told him that Hampton would pay room, board, and tuition for the students from the North Campus. And how did he react? Oh, he was delighted. Uh, but since that time, we have gotten $100,000 from one of our trustees, wow. and we're going to use that money uh, to try to help pay for I-20s. Visas, uh, you mean? And other kinds of uh, costs for these uh, students. So how many students do you expect to be taking you up on this offer? Well, I will tell you, within uh, 8 or 10 hours, we had 22 students. By the end of the day, we had 50. Wow. Yesterday, we had 151. A lot of these students who will be arriving on your campus have lost their homes. They may be leaving family behind. I mean, they're entering a whole new community. What are your plans for providing, say, counseling or other mental health services on your campus? We uh, have had three meetings yesterday. We talked about all of that. We've got um, dormitory space for them. We've got a counseling center with certified uh, counselors because some of them may have PTSD. They may have some other kinds of mental issues. Mm -hmm. We've talked to the people in our Department of Psychology uh, because we're moving to do a number of those things. Now, this is not the first time that Hampton University has offered support to students after a natural disaster. You guys opened your doors after Hurricane Katrina as well. And I'm just curious, as an HBCU, do you feel a special responsibility when it comes to disasters that disproportionately affect Black communities, like the Ninth Ward or like the Bahamas? Well, let me just say to you that one of the things that Hampton has done from its very beginning is to provide help to others. We were founded by General Samuel Chapman Armstrong, and he was a union general, a white man that wanted to provide an education for recently freed slaves. So a part of our DNA is to help people, and we did help the some of the Katrina um, victims. Yeah. I think, I don't remember, I think we had about 40 or 50. This looks like we're going to have uh, more than that. Uh, we've gotten a lot of fanfare on this one, but we do a lot of things that people don't know about because we aren't doing it for any reason other than it is the right thing to do and it's the best thing to do, and we're going to continue to do that. Well, I wish you all the best. William Harvey is the president of Hampton University. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Hey, man, she'll be due. Shooby-doo. Then the handshakes. And somebody would say, what does that mean? Oh, shooby-doo, man. Get with it. You know, to oop to school. <laughs> now, these are people who are supposed to be intelligent. It's not a plan for finding uranium on the moon. We're not scientific at all. We're not scientific at all. Our next story of being in the wrong place at the wrong time is about a young scientist this person was brilliant and ambitious and would go on to bring hope to a whole bunch of people who had been condemned to a life of suffering and isolation. But today our hero is barely remembered, maybe because she was a she and African-American 
and the year was 1916. Paul Wormager first got wind of the story when he was working at a research library. He's retired now from the University of Hawaii. It was a serendipitous thing. I was working at the Science and Technology Reference Desk, and somebody came and asked a simple question, um, do you know if there is a Shimogra tree growing on campus? That tree, the Chalmugra tree, was central to a discovery that now seems obscure, but at the time was a huge deal. And the person who made it was Alice Augusta Ball. Ball grew up in Seattle's Central District. Her grandfather was an early photographer, one of the few black experts at a technique called daguerreotype. Paul Wormager imagines that awakened Alice's interest in chemistry. I think as a child, can you imagine seeing a piece of paper being submerged into a liquid and then all of a sudden out of it comes a picture. I think it was very unique and it made her very unique. She would go on to study pharmacy at the University of Washington and showed huge promise. She actually got two articles co-published before she even got her master's degree in the most prestigious chemistry journal in the world. So that struck me as, wow, this person is pretty amazing. Alice Ball headed to what was then called the College of Hawaii for graduate school, destined to encounter that Chalmugra tree. The thing that brought tree and chemist together was leprosy. It was considered a death sentence. Not only that, but then you were taken away from your family. And in Hawaiian and Polynesian and Asian Family is the most important thing. Once you lose that, you're kind of, well, you're dead in some ways. It, of course, is biblical in its conception. That's James Harnish of Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. The stigma with the almost terrifying skin and facial disformities. So all of that tends to make somebody with leprosy an outcast. Harnish runs Harborview's Hansen's Disease Clinic, Hansen's disease is another name for leprosy, which Harnish has been treating for a half a century. He says that for most of history, people with this disease were simply isolated and left to die. There was no treatment at that point in time at all, so it was a matter of just offering care while you're watching the disease progress to destroy the face, destroy the hands, the arms. Uh, it was a very sad situation. There was one folk remedy for leprosy, though it wasn't super effective, oil extracted from the seeds of a tropical Asian tree called chalmugra. But using chalmugra oil had drawbacks. People were applying it both to the lesions as a salve as well as injecting it in an oil-based preparation. The injections were extraordinarily painful, but it was observed that people who used chalmugra oil actually showed some benefit. So the challenge was this, to come up with an extract of the oil's active ingredients that could be mixed in water and injected without pain. A local surgeon in Hawaii took up the problem, and he contacted Alice Ball for help. It's hard to understate how daunting that assignment was. Alice Ball was just 24 years old and fresh out of undergrad, for one thing. And, of course, this was 1916. There were no modern centrifuges or gas chromatography. But there was a brand new, still obscure method being developed in Europe, and Alice Ball found out about it. People were struggling just with, what do you do with this oil that if you let it set, it just hardens into like lard. But using alcohol, you make it into what's called an ethyl ester. 
then it becomes water soluble. And that was the breakthrough that she made. It was the first practical injectable extract of chamugra oil. And for the first time in human history, there was a dependable, effective treatment for this feared and ancient disease. The people who did finally get the injections did show remarkable improvements. I found photographs, and they're just startling. The person looks like really a different person. Now, Charmugra oil was not a cure. That would come later with new drugs in the 1940s. But James Harnish says it gave a group of doomed people hope for the first time. You have to understand, she was doing this before women had a right to vote. This is amazing. And again, she was an African-American woman. Phenomenal that she could get this far. So where is Alice Ball in the firmament of pioneering scientists? Where's the statue and the biopic and the endowed chair of chemistry or whatever? Well, that would have been a great question to ask Arthur Dean. He was president of the College of Hawaii, and he took up Alice Ball's work. The thing is, people assumed it was Dean, the white man, who had the breakthrough. And he accepted the credit that should have gone to the black female prodigy. So then his name became attached to this breakthrough with Shimugra, and people forgot about Alice. And it gets worse. This should have been just the opening to a brilliant scientific career for Alice Ball. Instead, just months later, at age 24, she had an accident in the classroom. Well, according to the newspaper, recounts two of them say that she was demonstrating some experiment in class and got poisoned by chlorine gas. Alice Ball died before she could watch her research transform so many lives and without getting proper credit. It wasn't until the last couple of decades that her name has resurfaced, thanks partly to Paul Wormacher of the University of Hawaii. He nudged the university to honor Ball, and he personally established a scholarship in her name. These days, he's retired, but still working busily to write Alice Ball's biography. I never, ever had a sister when I grew up, and I always kind of wanted a, a sister. So I have kind of adopted her as my sister, and I only want the very best for her because she was so ignored, which is, you know, that, that's a wrong for its part, the University of Washington has not memorialized this extraordinary alumna, besides one UW employee planning her own gift in Alice's name to fund women of color junior faculty. But in the summer of 2019, Alice Ball did get a measure of recognition in Seattle. At the age of 23, she discovered what is now known as the Ball Method after isolating the ethyl esters. This is third grader Jesse Balnick. According to her mom, Jamie Clausen, Jessie learned about Alice Ball in a book called Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls 2. She created this video and launched a campaign to convince the Seattle Parks Department to name a small park after Alice Ball. There is a new park opening up next to the Greenwood Library. It's a park where kids and their families can come to read and learn from the books they check out. We think it would be wonderful if that park could be named after Alice Ball so kids could remember that learning can change lives and that learning can look like all of us. The push succeeded. Alice Augusta Ball is now the namesake of a park in the city she was born in. It's taken a hundred years, but this pioneering black woman chemist is finally taking her place in the history of science and in bedtime stories for rebel girls everywhere. 
since you're my special friend, come closer for a special treat. I'm going to let you touch me in a special place. It is never okay to touch someone else's private parts. Your mom and dad will tell you so. So the MIT Media Lab is the latest institution tainted by Jeffrey Epstein's money. On Saturday, the director of the lab, Joey Ito, resigned, writing in an internal email, quote, after giving the matter a great deal of thought over the past several days and weeks, I think that it is best that I resign. But in reality, Ito's soul-searching was likely expedited by reading the reporting of Ronan Farrow, who has uncovered that the MIT Media Lab not only knew about Jeffrey Epstein's status as a sex offender, but that they went to great lengths to conceal Epstein's financial contributions and his connection to those of some of his high-profile friends. Ronan Farrow is a contributing writer to The New Yorker and author of the forthcoming book Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. His reporting for The New Yorker won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Ronan, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and congratulations on another uh, great piece of reporting. Because until your piece posted on Friday, uh, we thought that Joey Ito's involvement was far less than you discovered. Um, What did he initially say and what did you discover? What we found, as you summarized accurately, is that there was both a, a far larger scale of relationship with Jeffrey Epstein consisting of donations directly from Epstein that were anonymized and also donations from other contacts with Epstein, other billionaires, um, who were also anonymized. Um, And then secondarily, we found that, that as you alluded to, there was a much deeper and more concerted cover-up in the words of some of the whistleblowers that I spoke to. And when you say some of his billionaire friends, uh, some that I guess a person or two may have heard of, like Bill Gates, for example, who was denying any Epstein connection to the giving. Is that is that correct? Well, we include his statement, which appears to be very carefully phrased in the article, and I'll let that speak for itself. But certainly he's saying that he you know, didn't have a uh, significant relationship with Epstein, where Epstein was directing his contributions. Um, he doesn't answer the question of whether he and Epstein had contact about these specific contributions uh, as the email or documents that we have uh, not only suggest, but appear to confirm. I mean, this was a situation where both Ito and Epstein uh, really credited Epstein with that Bill Gates donation and described it as being directed by Epstein. You know, Ronan Farrell, you have some incredible details in here about the nickname that uh, Epstein had around Ito's office. Tell us about that. Yeah, I I mean, we all have to be thankful here for these whistleblowers who decided to speak. And uniformly, they did so because they felt a moral obligation to do right by both the the survivors of Epstein's predation and also, I think, the, the larger issue of whether important institutions that we care about and respect, like MIT, um, should be engaging in this kind of a relationship uh, and an effort to conceal it. And, uh, you know, they, they described wrenching stories of feeling conflicted. Um, one of the anecdotes was indeed that there were so many anonymized secret references to uh to Epstein and his contacts with the lab that they started referring to Epstein as Voldemort or he who must not be named. 
From Harry Potter. So we're talking. From talk- Harry Potter. We're talking to Ronan Farrow. Uh, so uh, the guy was disqualified, had disqualified status as a donor. So obviously there are two choices: not to take money from him or money that he facilitated, giving that he facilitated, or to do this hiding. And and, and from anonymizing it, to use your word, in 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 Ito's schedule, which I guess was a public schedule. Uh, it would either say things mm-hmm. like VIP or whatever else could be done to make it unlikely that anyone outside his small universe knew that Epstein was uh, – he was talking to Epstein or Epstein was making an appearance or a contribution. Is that is that a fair statement? I think that that's a fair statement. Now, that doesn't mean that the wider MIT community was completely oblivious. You know, we in this reporting focus on – this circle around Ito and, you know, that there are hard documents there. And we quote many of the emails internally saying, you know, this is from Jeffrey. It needs to be kept anonymous. Uh, here's this Bill Gates uh, donation directed by Epstein. Make sure that it's only uh, described in any official filings as an anonymous donation directed by a friend of the donor um, and on and on like this. Uh, that said, while we describe an effort to conceal the full extent uh, from the central fundraising office, it certainly does appear that the central fundraising office had some awareness. And, you know, we leave the door open to MIT's examination of how far that went. As you mentioned at the beginning of this story, um, uh, we have uh, evidence that Jeffrey Epstein was listed as being disqualified from contact with uh, MIT in their donor database. And by the end, they were accepting all of this money, and it appears that you know part of that process was basically that they decided to undisqualify him, um, which would not be a unilateral uh, media lab decision. You know that would involve the, the central fundraising office as well. You know, uh, I want to go up the chain if we can, Ronan Farrow from the New Yorker, mm-hmm. for uh, a second. When this story pre you originally broke, the president of MIT, Reif, as I think you pronounce his name, says, with hindsight, we recognize with shame and distress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then he goes on to say, after your piece is posted on Friday, because the accusation this story are extremely serious, they demand an immediate, thorough, and independent investigation, et cetera, et cetera. To me, uh, I can be less objective, I guess, than you. Uh, there's a Captain Renault aspect. Uh, uh, to this thing, either is it likely that someone up the chain outside the media lab would have known about this, number one? And number two, did President Reif need you to do your work to know that an independent, immediate and thorough investigation needed to be done of Jeffrey Epstein's ties to the university? Well, I'll leave that last question about what MIT leadership should have done to others. You know, we're we're here just laying out the facts. I Mm -hmm. will say that there are a lot of whistleblowers we talk to, a lot of people within the MIT community who are asking those same questions. Um, As I said, you know, this reporting suggests that, yes, there was uh, this concerted effort to conceal these contacts within the media lab, but also, yes, that this was not something that... MIT, uh, in a wider sense, was totally unaware of. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the moral discomfort of these sources who are, you know, good people who signed up to do good work, right? They wanted to be engaged in noble research that would contribute to the greater good and were put in this tremendously uncomfortable position uh, 
they were signaling this for a while and quite noisily, you know, on mass emails, in group discussions. This community was already roiled by this, and, and many of them are uh, alarmed that it took this degree of exposure and, you know, sort of public uh, finger wagging, which has come in response to my article, in order to prompt action. We're talking to Ronan Farrow, who's just written a devastating piece about the MIT Media Lab and uh, perhaps many others' knowledge of, of financial contributions to the lab from Jeffrey Epstein and some of his associates. Tell us the story of the Sidney Swenson person, Ronan. Yes, so Sidney Swenson is a great example of why we all need whistleblowers in a corporate setting, in an academic setting, in a government setting to ensure accountability. She was a uh, a, a development associate, first in the central fundraising office, and then within the MIT Media Lab. And she is one of a group of, of sources who went out on a limb to try to expose what she described as a cover-up. When she was hired from the central fundraising office to the Media Lab, uh, she felt that it was an explicit part of her mandate to cover up this relationship. It was in her earliest uh, conversations about the job. She was told that they had this contact with Epstein, and very quickly when she started the job, um, those conversations became still more uncomfortable for her as they uh, appeared to, she said, seek ways to cover up the donations and keep them flowing. Um, and she really was particularly uncomfortable when Epstein was invited to visit. And there were all these conversations where leadership at the lab made clear that they were aware Epstein would be coming with two young women and that they were aware that he was a convicted sex offender, um, you know, with a uh, a track record of established predation on young women. Um, And so she and a number of other female members of the staff, especially, um, you know, were were morally conflicted as this played out. Uh, They were told to keep a professor who was critical of the contact with Epstein away from line of sight with the office in which Epstein would be taking meetings, which had a glass-windowed wall. Um, you know, they felt this was a cover-up, and they saw these young women who they said were Eastern European-looking, seems to be maybe models, um, and who sort of waited outside during these meetings with faculty, and they really were concerned for their safety. Uh, Swenson describes, you know, trying to be extra nice to these young women on the off chance that they're there against their will. Uh, and, you know, I think for, for people who care about an institution like MIT and the work that it does, that's a terrible position to, to put staff in. Um, they really felt that there was a chance that this cover-up, again, to use their word, uh, was allowing Epstein to use MIT and his relationship with it to burnish his reputation, uh, to keep his reputation afloat in the wake of that conviction, um, and possibly to continue his predation. So, so that is, you know, the the great debate. Is there anything wrong with taking this kind of money from someone with this kind of a criminal history? And their answer, the whistleblower's answer is yes, because he then used it as a shield that maybe allowed him to harm others. You know, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised at anything anymore, but I guess there's something so bizarre about Jeffrey Epstein showing up with with these two young women who look like Eastern European models to a meeting at MIT. And everybody, yeah, everybody just kind of says, Except, except, except for, for the this, Swenson woman. Yes, the women that were concerned about them. It's, is that, did that kind of knock your socks off, or is that, am I being naive here? I mean, I think it knocked their socks off, and not in a good way. That's why there were these whistleblowers who, you know, leaked documents and gave accounts of this, 
you know, I should say in defense of this community, which I think is full of a lot of wonderful researchers and other members of the staff, uh, that it wasn't everyone saying, oh, this is great, this is okay. A number of people confronted Joey Ito about it. Um, there's a faculty member named uh, Ethan Zuckerman yes. who yep. uh, posted a, a very moving post about why he was resigning his connection with the Media Lab over this. He confronted Ito about it, and that's an anecdote that we have in the piece. Um, so thank goodness there, there were people who found it as bizarre as we're finding it, hearing about it, and did something about it. But it did take years, and they don't know who came to additional harm in those years. So, so yes, it's bizarre. It's not something you would ever see if you weren't taking a, a lot of largesse and a lot of money from someone. Speaking of a lot of money, Ronan Farrow, uh, is the amount of money that you're reporting that Epstein is credited with securing for MIT through others, at least, was a couple of million dollars from Bill Gates and $5.5 million from this Leon Black, this investor. Uh, they made a point, I guess it was Ito that said the, they were going to donate the 800000 that uh, they had acknowledged when uh, a month or so ago that Epstein had contributed to charity. Has there been anything from the leadership of MIT about what they're going to do there with the $7.5 million? Bucks? They, they have said only that there will be an independent investigation, um, and of course Ito resigned. And Peter Cohen, who was working under Ito and is on many of the emails that we excerpt in the piece um, has also been suspended from his job at Brown, where he currently works. And, and one last thing from, from me, Ronan Farrow. You mentioned Harvard University's donations. Tell us about those. So there were a number of institutions that had relationships with Epstein, and certainly we know that uh, Harvard was one of them, uh, like MIT. Uh, Epstein seemed to be very proud of his associations with these schools. He, you know, was photographed wearing Harvard sweaters and talked about it a lot publicly. Um, you know, seemed to want to embrace the kind of patina of prestige that these schools gave him, even though he hadn't attended them. Um, you know, this fundraising relationship really gave him something that he could use to curry further favor with influential people. Um, and Harvard, for its part, has said, you know, we are not giving back any of this money. Um, you know, and, and that has not changed in the wake of these recent revelations. Well, they obviously can't afford to return the money. They're <laughs> from paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> Couples trying to get pregnant may have turned to an ovulation or period tracking app for help. Millions of women around the world use them for a variety of reasons. But what happens to the very personal data people enter in these apps? In some cases, it gets fed to third parties, including Facebook. That's according to a new report by the UK-based advocacy group Privacy International. They looked at these apps being used in different parts of the world. There's Maya, Maya Femme. My Period Tracker, Ovulation Calculator, and others. Eva Bloom Dumonté led the research on the period tracking apps. And what we found is that uh, the ones that are both called Maya have uh, very worrying practices because essentially they ask their users to enter extremely sensitive data, not just about uh, their menstruation, but also about their sexual life and also all sorts of medical data uh, like their uh, birth control pill, but also even like their blood pressure, any sort of medical history they might have. And this is all shared with Facebook and other third parties. 
And uh, those other apps that you mentioned, are they also acquiring the same kind of data? All of them actually are uh, collecting very sensitive data. The other ones, we're not sharing it with Facebook or other third parties. Uh, but what they were doing, though, is that every time uh, the user would open the app, they let Facebook know that the user is opening the app. So Facebook knows that you're using this app, which means that you're a person who menstruates, that probably if you open the app, that means you're at a time of your cycle where you're actually on your period. Uh, it probably also tells Facebook that you're maybe either trying to have a child or trying to avoid getting pregnant. Uh, so there's a lot of information already that can be inferred from just merely letting Facebook know that you've opened the app. And just to be clear, I mean, this information, the the app developers would say this is legitimately needed to make certain determinations about uh, fertility, correct? Yeah, so it's it's needed for them. But what's, you know, absolutely not, you know, mandatory is, is sharing it with Facebook. So what does Facebook do with this data, with this information? It's unclear at this stage what Facebook does with, uh, with this information. Uh, what we question is why a company like Facebook should have access to this data. When we think back to the reality of what has happened with Facebook collecting so much data about us in the past, and obviously I'm thinking, for example, about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the targeting of population in the context of, of election, it is worrying that a company like Facebook would hold so much data and so much personal, intimate data. Hmm. Who around the world is typically using these apps? So the apps we've looked at are particularly popular in India, in Indonesia, and uh, in the Philippines, actually. Right. And uh, women there, are they're giving this information voluntarily. I mean, do you know if there are concerns about this, about privacy in those countries? We uh, partnered with BuzzFeed for this research, and they've interviewed uh, users of these apps in uh, in various countries. And obviously, sadly, a lot of users are simply not aware of the data collection and the ch- data sharing of those apps and their practices. Right, which seems like that ought to be changed. If people are unaware, they should be made aware. I mean, how clear do these apps make it in, ter- in their in their terms of Absolutely service? Absolutely not. I- in fact, because we. Um, we have uh, been looking at the privacy policies of those apps. It's worth bearing in mind that, you know, for the general public, for the average person, it, it would be actually quite a difficult thing to read. It's not, you know, necessarily written in very accessible language. It's quite long. They do not explicitly clarify the extent to which they share information with third parties. So we actually question even the, the legality of the, those privacy policies that are uh, not sufficiently transparent, not su- sufficiently explicit. Explicit, especially when, as I said, they are collecting medical data. I mean, the thing is, um, even when people are aware and they then decide to uh, fork over the fork over the data, they're doing it willingly. They're doing it voluntarily, right? Well, but there is a question to be asked about: Are those people doing it voluntarily when they don't actually understand what's going to happen to this data and when it's not uh, properly explained to them? You know, in European data pr- uh, protection legislation, there's a really important notion, which is informed consent. Uh, if you don't understand what you're signing, it cannot be understood as informed consent. And that's actually what we would argue in this case. Uh, it, it can't be argued that they were really consenting to this. Eva Bloom Dumonté with Privacy International, speaking with us from London. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And I see so many males, young males in my practice who have become psychotic. 
almost never to return to normal from marijuana use because you don't know what's in it. You don't know how it's been genetically altered. Again, everything has to be put in the context of a power dynamic system of racism and white supremacy. Federal health officials went to the White House today and got the go-ahead to banish flavored vaping products from the market. The Food and Drug Administration action is aimed at an epidemic of teenage vaping. NPR science correspondent Richard Harris reports. When these products came on the market, some people welcomed vaping as a potentially safer alternative to cigarettes. And while millions of adults have switched from cigarettes, vaping has also drawn in a new generation of nicotine addicts. The latest survey of youth tobacco use shows this trend is continuing, says Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar. We are seeing a continued surging of middle school and high school children using e-cigarettes increasing frequency of their use, and children being drawn in by flavored e-cigarette products, including mint, menthol, bubblegum, mango, alcohol-flavored, etc. Speaking to reporters outside the White House, Azar said he was directing the FDA to develop a plan that will ban these child-friendly flavors. Tobacco-flavored products would still be allowed, at least for now, he said, intended for adults as an alternative to cigarettes. But if we find that children start surging into tobacco-flavored e-cigarettes, or if we find marketing practices that target children and try to drive the market share into tobacco-flavored products, we'll engage in enforcement actions there also. Health advocates said this step is long overdue. Paul Billings at the American Lung Association says his group and others successfully sued the FDA to force regulation of vaping products. He suspects the recent outbreak of serious lung disease among vapors has finally put these problems in the spotlight. And unfortunately, it's taken this crisis to finally prompt uh, this action. Health officials don't know whether flavored products have contributed to more than 450 cases of lung disease, including six deaths. But people who are addicted to nicotine and vaping devices put themselves at risk, he says. The FDA says it intends to finalize its new policy in the coming weeks. Richard Harris, NPR News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 14, 2019. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Uh, Dial in if you have thoughts, counter racist suggestions, questions. The number to dial 605-313-5100. Six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like. To participate. Many things uh, to share this week. Uh, Let's see. Number one, I am super excited. Uh, Tomorrow, I'm looking forward. Black female that I know, 
been talking about eating better, trying to cook together, to cook more vegetables and be healthy. She is a black mom, so she has lots of motivation uh, to take care of her health so, so that she can be around, uh, to take care of her children, be a black grandmother at some point, hopefully. Lots of motivation. Uh, so we've been looking at different recipes and trying to cook things uh, and even trying to change uh, some recipes that generally would be uh, with meat products and that sort of thing to make them a little healthier, get more veggies uh, and that sort of thing in. Uh, I'm always a big advocate of encouraging fruits. Get away from those sweets uh, and get more fruits uh, in your system. Uh, they have amazing peaches here. I have lived in Georgia. I have lived in California. They have pretty amazing peaches there, too. But wow amazing peaches uh here and they're huge uh they're uh I, there's a one-year-old that i know godchild. uh the peaches are about as big as her head so if you uh, can envision a one-year-old's head peaches are about that big Whew. wow and they're amazing super sweet just uh, incredible they were on sale this week uh organic no less they were on sale this week so i got a bunch of them, pounds of them, and immediately said, oh, vegan peach cobbler. I've never made uh, vegan peach cobbler before. I've never made cobbler before. Never even been, you know, a fan of cobbler, even though I know it exists. But I immediately, vegan peach cobbler, have to do it. The peaches are so good, and they were so inexpensive with the sale. Uh, so I looked up. Uh, they have lots of recipes, found one that I liked, got all the ingredients, I am excited to make vegan peach cobbler tomorrow, especially uh, or a component of my eagerness is if it turns out well, uh, and I have every expectation that it will, if it turns out well, I was thinking we could make this for the yoga retreat in December down in Florida. But then I thought, I don't think peaches are in season in December, so we might not be able to do peach cobbler, but... I'm sure we could figure something else out. If it comes out well with peaches, we could just pick a different fruit that is in season and work with that. But whew, excited for the vegan peach cobbler. We'll let you know how it turns out. Maybe even have a picture. I'm extra excited uh, for the cows 2019 10-year anniversary counter-racist yoga retreat. Planning for Florida December 28th to January one. Lodging, meals included, everyone will have a bed. There's a swimming pool at the location that we're looking at. Uh, should be a hoot. Uh, we will have counter-racist workshops. Mandatory that at least one will include work uh, workplace racism because that was such uh, a item of discussion uh, back in Virginia. Uh, but we will have counter-racist workshops uh, to offer constructive suggestions uh, on different subjects. Uh, we will have food workshops showing how to prepare meals, maybe even the vegan uh, cobbler. Uh, but different entrees, how to prepare vegetables that are tasty, healthy, uh, and will be enjoyed, maybe even devoured uh, by meat lovers. Uh, we'll also <clears throat> be doing yoga every day, taught by Gus T., Really looking forward to uh, getting some sunshine and getting away from all of the so-called holiday nonsense that generally happens uh, during the end of December and setting ourselves up, hopefully, for a constructive 2020. 
All of the information is on my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. You can check it out, drop an email if you have questions uh, about the retreat cost, what we'll be doing, where we will be staying, meal items, all of that. If you have input or suggestions, feel free. Looking forward to uh, having a constructive end to the year and a great beginning to 2020. Until justice at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, or concerns about the retreat. Speaking of yoga, so I got this internship so that I could get more opportunities to teach, be a better instructor. Hopefully I'll be a substantially better instructor by the time we get to the retreat. I'll uh, retreat because I will have taught uh, a lot more classes and learned a lot more, be even better. So I've been going to the studio, learning, uh, preparing. If you're in the Seattle area and you want to come take a class that Gusty is teaching in a really nice studio, drop me an email. I will be teaching... uh, the 29th and the 6th. Drop an email. Let me know. You can come take a class. We can discuss counter-racism. Maybe we can even go to the library at the studio. They're giving me a tour uh, of the studio where my internship is. They have a library upstairs. (laughs) Reading is more important than watching television. Of course, I go check out the library. Now, most of the material that they have, they're yoga books. Duh, yoga studio, that's what you would expect. Uh, anatomy books, muscles of the body, yoga sequencing, yoga postures, that sort of thing. That's what you were, yeah, that's what one would expect if a yoga studio is going to have a library. Hark, I continue to look through the books. They have a copy of Rebecca Sklute, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Cal's Book Club, right? 2014. I look and, whoa, what is this doing here? I look again. Maybe I misread. You know, I could be an illiterate nigger. I look again. Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And I think to myself repeatedly, what is this doing in a yoga studio library? They didn't have any other books. They didn't have ta Coates or James Baldwin. The Hate You Give, New American Classic. They didn't have any of that, but they had the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. I said, hmm, I will have to ask the white yoga instructor who owns the studio, uh, how did this book get here? Why is this book here? Have you read this book? What did you, quite a few questions because we did read that their book uh, on the book club 2014 in the archives. Uh, Next, speaking of archives, I think the very first clip that we played was about uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898 uh, white terrorist attack. They used that word coup there. This past week, this is the uh, 18-year anniversary of 9-11. They used the word terrorism. Uh, They've been using the word terrorism for 18 years now. They didn't use the word terrorism, white terrorism in Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898. Cow's Archives, Christopher Everett uh, he made the documentary film Wilmington on Fire. It is spectacular. It's a guest on the program uh, towards the end of 2015. Uh, it's one of the best documentaries that I've seen uh, in terms of accurate information uh, about white supremacy, racism. I highly, 
highly endorse uh, folks checking out the film. Uh, there are lots of screenings if you're in uh, the North Carolina region. So just be mindful. You can follow him on Twitter and his social media accounts, Mr. Everett, and see when the next screening will be. But it is definitely worth the time and energy. You will learn a lot. It should be mandatory viewing if you are in North Carolina. But I thought that was so important. Uh, one, the deliberate effort to destroy black journalists and the work of black journalists. This is uh, consistent. Mr. Everett talked about that in the documentary. They burned down uh, the actual building, the premises where uh, Mr. Manley had his uh, black press operating from in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, and that was done deliberately. That was one of the first areas uh, attacked in the uh, terrorist raid, white terrorist raid. But I just I thought that was so important because that is so uh, consistent in the system of racism, white supremacy. I think uh, even now um, we talk I've heard many folks talk about difficulty in obtaining copies of Mr. Fuller's books or Dr. Welsing's work. Uh, sometimes that that's been difficult or they'll be really expensive trying to get them uh, from different websites online. Uh, the context of white supremacy, how uh, the disruption to our archives, the iTunes feed not working, we've been kicked off the air repeatedly. All of this is a deliberate effort. Uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett uh, having to flee for her life and just barely getting out of town. Uh, there are so many, uh, barely getting out of Tennessee, be specific. Uh, there are so many examples uh, of black journalists, black people, period, but black journalists, especially uh, who've made an effort uh, to just try to report uh, about racism, white supremacy in an accurate manner. Uh, and the threat that that represents to racism, I just I think that that is critical and it represents another illustration, in my view, that is evidence that the system of white supremacy can and will be defeated if that was not the case, if this system was just going to be permanent on infinitum, whatever, have your little nigger, you know, press, whatever, we'll come and help you pass out your little journal. Who cares? You can write uh, until the end of time and we will just continue to dominate and terrorize black people and you'll just write about it forever and stack newspapers up to the heavens. That would be the attitude, not let's go burn this down immediately and kill them off so they don't get to publish any more of this. That sounds like, oh, wow, maybe they could get things right, get a correct understanding and do something correct to solve this problem. Next, <clears throat> uh, we had, uh, oh, wait a minute, before we move from the, the Wilmington situation, I also thought it was critical. White people are not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Victims of racism, non-white people, are the ones who are confused about racism, and we do not understand what it means to be classified as white. Sometimes we are even reticent to believe what it means to be classified as white. What uh, the grandsister, Dr. Welsing, she used to say that her job as a general and child psychiatrist was to help people deal with reality, even when they are reluctant to do so. Mr. Manley, for all of his spectacular counter-racist work in that segment, they said that he got information specific detailed information that, uh oh, the whites are stockpiling guns. Haven't we heard that before? The whites are stockpiling guns, ammunition, all kinds of weapons, and they're coming to attack us. 
and he did not want to believe, Mr. Manley, he did not want to believe that the whites were going to do that. He said, oh, no, this can't be. This is the great state of Carolina. We have a democracy. Didn't Dr. Didn't Dr. Welsing talk about that? You don't have a democracy. We have a system of white supremacy, local, national, global. That's what we have, and violence is necessary. That problem that you heard from Mr. Manley, that was 1898, all this time later, unfortunately, you see the same problem where there is reluctance to understand and accept what it means to be classified as white. That's a product of white supremacy as well, but that is something that needs to be addressed. Just accepting truth, even when we are reluctant to do so. And in, right in the same topic, white people are not ignorant about white supremacy racism. The Jeffrey Epstein case, great illustration. You can learn a lot just studying uh, that case. Why I keep playing different segments on it. And, you know, lots of folks are talking about it. Cynical African included. We've talked about uh, white sexual deviance as collective cultural pathology and seeing, you know, the Jerry Sandusky, seeing this behavior repeat itself over and over uh, for centuries. Thomas Jefferson uh, fondling fathers, seeing this repetitive cycle of sexual terrorism. With Jeffrey Epstein, this is another illustration of white people cannot be ignorant about racism. How many times? It's not just one report. It's been multiple reports of many, many white people all over the world who knew about Mr. Epstein's incorrect sexual terrorism and didn't do anything about it and or aided and abetting, aided and abetted in concealing this really criminal behavior. That is standard operating procedure. The same way that white people were aware, oh, it looks like he is raping these young girls. Hmm. What did they say in the report? They said officials at MIT are accused of, well, if you have a problem with Mr. Epstein raping these young girls, we'll just make sure that we keep you away from him when he comes to visit. Hope he cuts us another big check. That's not ignorance. That is willful concealment. And if anybody acts like they have a problem with this, well, you just make sure you get whisked away. Maybe you even get fired or don't get tenure or whatever it's going to be. Make sure you don't mess up things around here. Again, that's standard operating procedure. And I mean, if you think it operates, uh, it only operates with regards to covering up sexual misconduct. This is racism, white supremacy all the time. Uh, and the only difference being with racism, white supremacy, they use the metaphor whistleblowers in this case to say that you had some white people step up uh, and say, hey, this is incorrect. And even, you know, one professor, they say resigned and other people were, were writing and talking about this. But with racism, white supremacy, you don't have that, generally speaking. They just collectively go wrong with. Yep. Not hiring the niggers. Yep. Raping the niggers. Yep. That was Jerry Sandusky. Wasn't that the allegation? That's in the Cal's archive, too, that Jerry Sandusky was specifically targeting non-white children. Uh, these foster care children, throwaway children, as Dr. Welsing would call them. That's what we heard before. They're not ignorant about white people going out and raping these young children uh, in the Catholic Church or wherever else that it's happening. They're not ignorant about that. And they certainly are not ignorant about how the Negras are mistreated worldwide. Next, uh, and they even had a nickname. They had a nickname. That's a metaphor, too. Uh, he who cannot be named. 
That is codifying how we are going to conceal. We're not even going to mention his name so that we can get some distance from all this. Pretend that this is not even connected to us. Standard operating procedure. Uh, they had the segment uh, about Alice Ball's scientist. I was uh, struggling. I failed to find the clip where Dr. Welsing was talking about that. That's what we should aspire to, uh, to be scientists. Uh, and they mentioned Alice Ball and her work. And, you know, she's totally been uh, erased, just like the black journalist in North Carolina, erased her work and contribution. So we don't think of black people as scientists. That's another standard, uh, standard operating procedure. Uh, but they mentioned uh, that there is no recognition of her at the University of Washington. That's right, literally uh, down the street from me at the University of Washington. If you walk on that campus, you would think that no prominent black people have ever been there. If you just walk around and look at the photos that they have of students who've done great things or professors uh, who've done wonderful things, accomplished something, you would think that it is all white people. Uh, in fact, uh, Bruce Lee uh, a non-white person that I know, Bruce Lee, attended the University of Washington. They don't even have, uh, they did not have anything that even signified that with the status that he has on an international level. They didn't even have like a little uh, plaque or anything that said, oh yeah, uh, Bruce Lee went here for you a few years. But other than that, it's been all white folks. They didn't even have that. A uh, non-white person that I know had to, a years-long campaign uh, for them finally to put up uh, a garden that says, oh, yes, this will be the Bruce Lee Garden and remind people that he did attend the University of Washington. Uh, but they don't have anything to signify her presence there. Uh, and then they said that while she was alive, she's doing all this great work trying to address uh, leprosy. And the white man comes in and takes credit for her work. Now, we have heard that about eight billion times. I would say that's hyperbole, that it, but that's probably understating it standard operating procedure and it's important because in medical apartheid uh harriet a washington one of my favorite books all time also in the book club uh she made a point of saying or yes yeah, she made a point of saying how uh with nurse rivers who was a victim of racism black female who was used in the uh tuskegee study in alabama they would do reports and put her name at the top as though Nurse Rivers is running the whole syphilis uh, experiment down in Tuskegee, which was not the case at all. That's what I mean. About white people are not ignorant about white supremacy racism. Not in 1819, not in 1913, not in 2019. They're not ignorant. They cannot be ignorant. If it's, oh, this nigger is about to get some money or get credit for a discovery. Oh, sit down. She didn't do anything. This nigger just, you know, swept the floor, cleaned the toilet. That's all she did. I will take credit and get whatever prize recognition. Thank you. And spell out my name, letter by letter. If it's something where we know we've done some terrorism. Oh, we poisoned some niggers. Sat around and watched it and had a good time. Made up nicknames about him and everything. <laughs> that one. Oh, yeah. Put the nigger's name uh, at the top. She was in charge. She ran everything we just did. Did what, we to what she told us to do. Mm, shame how she treated her fellow brothers. The slickness of white supremacy racism. Uh, with that. Uh, if you could take about five minutes uh, to share your comments, questions, suggestions, uh, just to make sure that everybody gets at least uh, one opportunity to speak. Uh, if you have additional commentary, if you could wait until everyone has spoken at least once, that would be super appreciated. Uh, also, if you know you are in a noisy environment, 
If you could use your mute button, that would be splendid. Uh, you can just unmute yourself when you're ready to speak. And then once you're done, you can mute your line again. Uh, that way, if you uh, are someplace where there's music in the background and you got other people having different conversations, we don't have to compete with all that noise. Uh, we can preserve the quality of the broadcast and then you can unmute if you need to speak again. This is the compensatory call-in, so I do request for this one broadcast, if we could not use metaphors, uh, we heard a number of the Voldemort, number of metaphors uh, in the broadcast, uh, if we could make an effort to be direct about what we want to say, uh, race soldiers, they regularly employ metaphors, similes, analogies. Uh, to practice white supremacy, racism, deception. Uh, they will take two separate entities and insist that they are identical, exact same thing. And frequently that is not the case at all. Uh, victims, myself included, we have been exposed to this misconduct uh, for centuries. Uh, and many of us, we are still learning, which is fine. Uh, but sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our views. And in place of logic, we will use a metaphor or analogy of some sort. And often that just produces more confusion. Uh, if we could be direct, specific, exact with what we want to say, that would be grand. If we need more time to think, that is always allowed. I will prompt about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Uh, also, uh, I wanna make sure that I get in the banning of uh, the flavored vaping products. That I think is important. Uh, they, they had a report at the beginning of the week. The Center for Disease Control issued a warning. They said that nationally there had been, I think, six fatalities. More people will die from drinking. Probably more people will die from texting and driving this week than this weekend than that. But Six fatalities and hundreds of respiratory illnesses that seem to be linked to vaping uh, both nicotine and THC products. And they had a number of different reports talking about this and how uh, this uh, business, vaping products, uh, that it has grown exponentially and in such a short period of time. And uh, they don't have a lot of research on, you know, what are the effects uh, of using these products? What are the effects if you already have? a lung ailment uh, or some sort of respiratory uh, condition? Uh, what are the effects of long-term use? What are the effects of starting using these products at a young age? Uh, just lots of variables that they said, you know, we're just not sure. Uh, they said some people are buying these products on the quote-unquote black market, uh, meaning that they're not regulated. So who knows what's in the material? Uh, and it just, it reminded me the brilliance grandsister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, uh, one thing that I think may have been uh, minimized in discussing, uh, do we think it's going to be constructive legalizing, legalizing cannabis and what does that look like having, you know, proliferation of all these uh, legal narcotics? Uh, thinking about that in 2013, which is when Dr. Welsing was saying, you know, we don't know what's in it. I've seen black males become psychotic from using these materials. Uh 2013, people saying, yay, we should legalize. I don't think many of them were thinking about these vaping THC devices because many of them didn't exist. 
in 2013. I don't think that they were thinking about that being the method of consumption. And it has changed drastically uh, just in five years and probably many more changes to come. That's the type of thing that I think Dr. Welsing was saying that you may be thinking, oh, it's going to be this. This will be what the consumption will look like. This is, is my schematic for how I view what this will be. And it's something totally different uh, in terms of what racists, they're already thinking 15 years ahead of what this is going to look like in a totally different way of production, consumption, not to mention, as you stated, what's actually in the product. All of those questions, how does this impact your health in the long term? Uh, from a long-term perspective, all of that is super important. And then to see whites intervene at some level, say, man, we should maybe ban these flavored cigarettes that go into a lot of children, which was another concern that she had originally as well. Uh, I also, them banning the flavors, we in our archives, we had that conversation about menthol tobacco cigarettes. Why not ban them? They're super addictive and super deliberately marketed to black people. We talked about that uh, specifically. Why not ban those? Didn't see that happen. The e-vape, the flavored vape products. Oh yeah, let's ban those. Seems like it might be impacting a number of white children. Menthol cigarettes, literally keeping black people from being able to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. With that, I'll save uh, additional comments uh, for later, but thought that was uh, super important. Oh, the the last thing, parents cannot be spectators on this one because we did have um, a parent dial in yesterday and she said that her friend who is a black mom, she had a child, a daughter in school, I believe their daughter is 14, and it was a white child, a race soldier, a classmate uh, who kept saying nigger deliberately. Uh, right next to her. And then he kicked this uh, 14-year-old female. Uh, the victim reported this. And apparently the principal and some other white officials said, oh, okay, well, we'll have him apologize. And she didn't want to accept his apology. Bravo. Dr. Walsing talked about that too. She didn't want to accept his apology and said, oh my gosh, what is, what is wrong with you? What more do you want? He said he was sorry and you're going to reject that? Well, <laughs> We can't do anything more, you. And then they got hostile uh, with her and, and were discourteous, uh, like she's a bad person or something. And so the mom was thinking, you know, what, what should be done? The school year just started. It's just September. She's 14. Do we, would it be best to stay in this environment and develop a code on dealing with the racist students, racist staff, uh, to leave? What would be best? We talked about this to some degree yesterday, but I suspect there might be uh, some other parents with us today. Uh, who might have a thought. Uh, was a non-white child, 14 years old, school year just started. Uh, and she's. this is a private Catholic school uh, for added context. Uh, and this young lady is on a scholarship. Uh, and it, at least to me, it seemed like there may have been some element uh, of that racist uh, kind of paternalism. Like, oh my goodness, you know, this nigger is here on a scholarship and you're going to be ungrateful and not accept an apology and cause all this trouble? My gosh. Uh, would you want your child uh, to remain at that school and just develop a code, say, hey, even, you know, if you switch and go to a different school, racism will still be there. Or would you want them to switch and try to find a different alternative uh, for their academic school year? That would be good. Parents, if you have input on that, please share. Do not be a spectator uh, on that subject specifically. 
Number again is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, first few folks who dialed in, if you have con uh, comments, questions you would like to share, uh, line should be open. Uh, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I uh, plan on uh, commenting on uh, Ms. Hill's uh, report who is, that has gained popularity. Uh, I would say that uh, it probably would be a good idea that she have did more extensive research on the subject matter of of black males and uh, who are athletes in basketball and football all of a sudden start attending uh, historical black colleges. Uh, even the term HBCUs is a very uh, confusing term. Uh, but I would say that these institutions are not owned and operated and controlled by black people no more than Harvard or Princeton is. Uh, the only difference is, is that the majority of the population, of the student population at these institutions are non-white black people. That's the only distinctive, uh, the main distinctive thing about uh, those particular universities. Uh, I would suspect that she did not attend uh, a historical black college to have that uh, have some certain uh, uh, cultural knowledge of, of the uh, institutions themselves. Uh, black males 60, 70 years ago, uh, they went to those schools because they because the federal state uh, laws demanded that black people could not go to the uh, larger state uh, universities and colleges. And this was your place as a black person. Uh, as soon as the, uh, these institutions started recruiting black males, similar to the idea of the Major League Baseball uh, hiring Jackie Robinson, uh, the, the uh, uh, efficiency athletically of uh, the historical black colleges started going down dramatically. Uh, I don't think that's going to reverse itself. And if it does, you would have a situation to where, because she mentioned about attracting uh, people at the schools. Well, it also would attract white people to go to the schools. There are white people who attend Howard, uh, that attends uh, Florida A&M. Uh, and it, it would perhaps attract more white students and white employees 
to come to institutions that all of a sudden uh, where a whole lot of money is. And uh, so it's a lot that she needs to do more research on. Anyway, to the, uh, the question about the, uh, the 14 year old, uh, I would say that situations of that nature is probably is not going to diminish by going to another institution. Uh, the child may need to get more instructions on a counter racist code uh, and expect that type of uh, name calling that would exist with a uh, white person involved as far as any physical uh, uh, contact such as hitting or whatever then uh, that subject matter should be dealt with directly with the parents and the, the administration uh, directly. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you for listening. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, we, we did have people take both sides. Um, we had people who took the perspective that it would be best to be enrolled elsewhere and people who said it would be best to stay at the school and just develop a code because you'll have racists any any school you go to, uh, individuals classified as white. So both perspectives, uh, both logical, just have to figure out what's going to work best for your uh, situation uh, and what your alternatives are. Uh, with the the piece on the uh, Jamel Hills report, she's a black female victim of racism. Uh, I've heard that sentiment before, that view before in terms of uh, black athletes going to uh, HBCUs. Uh, it's at least in my view, it's similar to the perspective that uh, black uh, NBA athletes or other professional sports should form their own league uh, as opposed to continue and have to deal with the Donald Sterling's and racism in professional sports. Uh, my view is that both of those perspectives, that is anachronistic thinking. At minimum, it's inaccurate. I think it's anachronistic thinking. Anachronistic thinking is something that is uh, in relation to time is out of place. Uh, so it's uh, 2019 right. uh, and I'm out here talking, hey, retired firefighter, if I can borrow your horse and buggy, I'm going to gallop down the street to get a loaf of bread. That is anachronistic thinking for 2019, thinking that black people doing this will solve the problem of racism in the NCAA or college sports. That is anachronistic thinking. Uh, it is massively inaccurate at minimum if there is a system of white supremacy, which there certainly is. Uh, there are many reasons that could point. I mean, we could just start these HBCUs as they stated in the report. Or, or It wasn't in Jamil Hill's report. It was in the report on Hampton University and them bringing in immigrants from the Bahamas. It was in that report right. that that institution is named after a white man. And I believe they all are. That would be one thing even just to stop right there about who's really in charge of these institutions. But just to fast forward, the first four the, students, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, one second, hang on one second, hang on one second. The massive amount of terrorism that would come NCAA. This is a billion dollar business. Just NCAA football alone. We're not even talking about the basketball component, just football disrupting that money for the University of Alabama, Ohio State, University of University of Florida, 
Florida, they just had that big uh, report. Florida State down there, retired firefighter, Tallahassee. Billions of dollars. All of these white boosters and white donors and white uh, college athletic directors. Do you think if it started to be, wait a minute, these little nigger colleges that we set up are scheming to take our nigger athletes? Oh, something must be done. The same thing I said it could be that, right. you know, Jay-Z is a sellout and he just dissed black, but that could be. But since all of this is about violence at the end of the day, football, it could have been, hey, it would be a shame if something happened to Beyonce. You want to think about that contract now? It could happen that way. <laughs> it could happen with college athletes. Oh, really? You're going to Morehouse. Oh, my goodness. Be a shame if your mom lost that job, wouldn't it? Hmm. You think about it. Right. Morehouse. University of Miami. You think about it. I'll stop there. If I'm being illogical in any way, folks can point that out. Uh, let's see. I'm going to get the folks that we've not heard from first. Make sure we nab everybody. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up that we missed totally. Uh, if you have commentary, parents can't be spectators here. Proceed. folks are getting their thoughts together. Uh, I guess while we wait for folks either to get their thoughts together, get to a place where they can speak. Uh, did you want to get your response in now, retired firefighter? Yes, sir. I, I, thank you. Thank you for, for uh, allowing me to speak again. Uh, I, I was just going to include uh, in reference to what you were saying is that the first four students at Howard University were four white women. Uh, Dr. Francois Welsing was fired from an historical, but I mean, we're talking about a person that her method of dealing with non-white people's minds should be, should be the, the way that psychiatrists should be trained, especially, and she was fired from an institution that, that, that's under that label, historical black college. I mean, very deceptive title. Uh, and they're not controlled by black people at all. I went to two of them. Langston University and Grambling State University and graduated from two of them. I mean, when it comes to basketball, when it comes to black basketball, uh, black males is one and done. That's a metaphor that, that states that I'm not even going to, to this university to, to learn something and graduate and get a diploma. I'm coming here from the standpoint of the NCAA, which is the main problem, one of the main problems, states that I have to get a certain number of hours before I'm eligible for the NBA. And I believe, I could be wrong, that, that uh, Mr. Mr. LeBron James didn't even go to uh, a, a, a college. I could be wrong about that. If he did, he went for one year, which is, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not blaming him for anything because I think, I, you know, I, I have a lot of admiration for him and what he's doing. But I'm just saying, I think she needed to do a little bit more research on her uh, – on her uh, uh, studies, although I do, you know, like Miss Hill also in what her efforts have been trying to be. I just think that she probably should have done a little bit more research on the on the uh, interview. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. Uh, other folks who 
dialed in that we missed totally, uh, if you have a, a hand up, star six one, line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Imhan DC. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, greetings. Um, I was going to mention um, this conference. I forgot the name of it, um, but the last time I said it, uh, the volume was turned down just for the two words of this, the name of this conference. But um, anyway, uh, it's, it's the one that Bill Gates is involved in. I've, I've done forgot, um, but that's that's one of the things I was going to mention. The other thing um, is just um, the fact that we need to share the show. We need to um, end white supremacy as soon as possible, and uh, dealing with the the people. Like the, I'm, I don't know how to deal with the um, black people uh, in my city or like anywhere. Like um, a lot of, or there's been a number of killings I had mentioned before. There was um, a high number of killings while I was out of the country. Um, right now, there's fewer, but I'm running into um, some people who. Um, who are with guns shooting, just just out shooting, um, you know, and not shooting any person at the moment, but, um, and it's difficult to talk to people. Um, this, uh, the males, um, you know, if we are, we're discussing, I'm trying to discuss, there was a shooting over in my neighborhood Somebody was driving by just shooting um, around the house. I don't know if they were shooting at the houses or what, but it, um, it was close to my house. It was They drove by my house. Um, and anyway, and I, I went and I was asking people, hey, did you see that the vehicle that just went by was shooting? And I was asking people, asking people. One of the guys just started cussing me out. It's like, what? You know? Another guy... Um, he was he was looking around to figure out what was going on because it went past his house too, but then when I told when I was like telling him hey they they had gone past my house and I you know I seen him he was like uh um oh that's the uh, that's his beef talking about that's my beef now you know that's like yeah, I don't I don't know anybody that's ain't nobody you know coming at me like that but um it's just I don't know how to talk to the um, talk to people about about this problem um, of um, black people killing black people. Uh, and I think that needs to uh, be addressed, but I don't know how to address it. Uh, thank you. Much obliged, uh, Imhan DC. Uh, I do think Mr. Fuller, uh, him living in Washington DC for the past, whew, he's been there for a long time, uh, decades, more than 25 years, unless I'm in error. Um, and it's a lot of black, even though it's fewer now, but I mean, still, it's a substantial number of black people uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And I think that has uh, heavily influenced a lot of his dialogue and counter racist perspective about minimizing uh, conflict, uh, being so critical 
towards replacing white supremacy with justice because I think he's seen a lot of the same uh, conflict uh, between black people in D.C. that you are reporting uh, and black people being violent uh, with other black people and it even being difficult to raise the conversation uh, with other black people. Uh, I've heard him have the same sort of dialogue. He's come on this broadcast and said just uh, sitting on the bus and he said it was just hostile. He said he was. it wasn't even that somebody was necessarily attacking him or saying anything, cursing him out or saying anything nasty to him. Uh, but it was just, what were they talking about? Hearing how they were talking to other black people, hearing how they were talking on the phone. And uh, he said it, it just was not constructive uh, for the most part. It was, you know, a lot of conflict uh, in there. And that's what the system of white supremacy produces. Uh, I think that's why he says uh, monsters and monstrosities. That's what this system produces, I think, uh, in trying to deal with it. Uh, I think, one, you just try as best you can to model uh, being someone who is not about conflict, who is about constructive uh, activity. Um, that's why if I, uh, I live in an area where they don't have a high number of black people, but if I did, that would be full-time occupation, uh, minimizing uh, conflict minimizing con uh, minimizing contact would be a big part of that modeling that behavior so that when people see me it would be associated with something constructive trying to offer constructive information or help do something constructive that would be a big part of it uh and just try and talk to the people uh that you can uh realizing that racism white supremacy that's why i said i think one of the ways one of the means of gauging whether or not you're effective can you produce other non-white people where you can discuss these problems and even help to solve some of these problems uh, because this system makes it so difficult. Uh, it, a lot of times it'll be conflict just trying to, to to raise some of these issues, which is what you just said. So I would just try and reach uh, the people that you can. If there are people that you already have uh, a constructive relationship with, uh, if you can start dialogue with them and maybe think of, of ways to reach out to other folks. Um, I, yeah, I would probably start with that, folks that you already have constructive contact, try and raise some of these issues uh, and see if you can what they call brainstorm. Think of ideas uh, to try to get more people uh, aware if it's creating material, uh, if it's writing, uh, but trying to do so and trying to do so in a setting where it can minimize uh, some of that tendency for it to be arguments. And, and we're just trying to figure out things to this is a problem. How can we try to minimize some of this conflict, some of this violence uh, between other black people? Um, we'll see if other folks have any uh, suggestions, because it does seem like this is a widespread product of the system of white supremacy. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up and we have missed you totally, line should be open. Proceed. Hello, may I be heard? Uh, greetings, Irie. Hello, how are you? And uh, hello, and I hope everyone else on the line is doing well. Um, I, I I think a couple of weeks ago I called in and reported about how I stepped in with some kids that were out in the um, in a popular area that were being harassed by um, some non-white people who were white identifying and some white people. Um, I ended up speaking with uh, an officer um, that was made aware of what happened, and he said he had an event number, not a report number, but an event number. So 
So that educated me that, you know, there's at least two phases of reporting, you know, with the police when it comes to things happening. And um, he let me know that the kids went back um, in the area to another place, were congregated in a large number, and were um, participating in very, um, I don't know, I don't know what the word would be. I can't remember what he said, but um, basically the, the shop they were in front of, um, the proprietors called the police because they were um, scaring the customers, so the police officer said, and also um, doing a lot of horseplay. And I was, uh, I can't say I was surprised, but I was a little bit disappointed because I thought at least the kids would think in the future perhaps about some type of, you know, legal consequences when it came to um, being in contact with the police, considering that they all knew enough to run off when they saw the police car with sirens coming up with the incident I intervened with. So that was an assumption. I shouldn't have done that. I was projecting. Um, And just made me really realize how uh, victimized our children are, how confused they are, um, and how much it's up to us to, um, to codify them and help them understand as much as we can as we still learn about the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, uh, it's a, I guess it's a metaphor, but I, I feel, I did feel some physical pain, um, from the, the footage in the Bahamas. It, it very much reminded me of New Orleans after the hurricane. Uh, it was worse in parts because there's so much water and it, and, and you know, like this is an island, like it's totally submerged in parts. And I felt a lot of emotional and physical pain for a woman that I can't remember her name, but if you look on Netflix, um, she was some type of caterer um, for the the fire festival that 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 festival in which the young white male was able to defraud people of millions of dollars um, repeatedly for a festival that never happened, and and the lady said that um, she had to borrow from her savings to pay her employees after um, the man basically stood her up on payments. And I'm just thinking, you know, who knows what's happened to this woman now because of the storm. She had a storm. Uh, well, uh, that's a metaphor, I'm sorry. She, she had a very, very arduous experience before this hurricane came, and now she's probably out of business, which is what natural disasters do to non-white people, put us out of business, put us, put us out of our homes. And I'm, I was, I was mad afterward, after remembering her story prior to the hurricane and now that the hurricane has happened. But I did find out some interesting information from somebody I'm close to that has family in the Bahamas. He said that NASA, NASA, excuse me, uh, wasn't hit as bad, and and that is interesting as that is you know the main I guess throughway for tourists, and I'm sure tourists that would classify themselves as white would probably frequent that area more in the Bahamas than other places. So that's interesting that it wasn't um, as impacted. Um, and the last thing, um, well, one of the last things. Champagne sharks, uh, sharks, excuse me, champagne sharks. I want you to know, Gus, that the way I found out about your show was through a podcast called Champagne Shark. 
and um, they have a Twitter presence, and they're also on Reddit. I don't, I don't hear about you mentioning Reddit, but um, they're on there, and I just wanted to let you know that they're they're how I found out about your program, and um, yeah, so maybe I don't know, just maybe listen to their show, check it out. They talk about a variety of things, but um, they definitely had a, a part in letting me know, so I'm sure they're letting you know, from their past episodes. Other people are finding out about context of the context of white supremacy as well. Um, and I'll, I'll mute my line for now. Thank you, everybody, for um, letting me speak, and thank you, Gus. And I hope all is well with everyone. Have a good night. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, Mary Ann Roll, I believe, is the victim's name, uh, the caterer that you are referencing, where the race soldier didn't pay her and she was put into some financial uh, difficulty because of this likely act of racism. Uh, Mary Ann Roll, that's her name. Folks want to check out uh, her work. Uh, much obliged for sharing. And I definitely uh, see the similarities. Bahamas, Hurricane Katrina. Absolutely. I think they uh, had similar commentary. Some of the main tourist areas in New Orleans were not hit as bad uh, as some of the other areas, Ninth Ward and such. Uh, let's see. Other folks that we have missed entirely, uh, number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, folks that we missed totally, uh, if you have commentary, question to share, proceed. Have you heard? Uh, yes, sir. Greetings. Um, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers, Thomas in New York. Um, Gus, I don't know about no. Um, little child-sized um, peaches, man. Are you sure those are, are really not GMO? That sounds quite large. I said the size oh. of a one-year-old's head, not the size of a child. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I got you. I was about to say, man, that's an awfully large peach. You know, but I, I hope your cobbler tastes excellent. Um, you know, I'll send you an address if you want to send me some. I'm just joking with you. Uh, the mother of modern science, Henrietta Lacks, at a white yoga studio in Seattle. Thus, I think that we, when we read the book, we all agreed that Rebecca Scoot was a white supremacist, not a suspect, um, especially her actions and taking advantage of that black family, doing very little to get them any compensation other than herself. She made a lot of money and recognition off of it. Uh, probably um, a fan of Rebecca School, not a book. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Um, Wilmington, um, man, I've been looking at a lot of stuff on this, doing a lot of reading on Wilmington um, for a reason. But uh, white, uh, white validation and the uh, integration illusion, um, I think that that's really what happened to the black people um, there. They saw it coming and they did nothing to prepare for it. Um, the newspaper article 
The guys like they're bringing in a little of guns, like you said, uh, you know, these are our business partners, our neighbors, our constituents, and um, they turned right on them. Um, now, um, I know that white supremacists put lines between North and South Carolina, but when you look at what happened there after slavery, the story in um, North Carolina mirrors the Ben Tillman story that we did on the book club as well. Um, and uh, in North Carolina, these black people had every elected uh, position you could think of um, at, under the Republican Party. Um, the Democrats were the white supremacists, uh, the more you know, the, the more violent ones. Um, it was it, you know just very, very much how he took over. You could put um, Charles Acock in Ben Tillman's place, and you'll get the pretty much the same story, same thing they did. Uh, and reconstructing white supremacy. Um, the populists with the fusion, they had the same thing where the farmers at first was, you know, um, after slavery weren't so violent toward the blacks and then the propaganda, the white, the black rapists, it, it turned all the poor whites against, I mean, it's the same stories. Um, but Manley, who owned the Daily Record, he ran a story um, saying that white women who were in Area 8 relations with black men um, did so because they choose to. And that was really um, the last straw. That's the order. I shouldn't say that metaphor. It was the, it was what was needed by the white supremacists to really come, come to the black um, people and, and burn it down and do whatever because they ran this article for years and um, rebuttals in all the white newspapers, not only in North Carolina, but in Tennessee, all over. Um, and what, just to stir up white anger um, behind this black man writing this article like this. And so many people lost their lives because of that. Um, I agree with what you guys said as far as um, the HBCUs. Um, black colleges can't compete with white colleges as far as money, facilities, they never will under a system of white supremacy. Um, don't expect them to under a system of white supremacy. It's just not going to happen. Um, the black players don't need exposure. If they go to a black college, the white supremacists will find them. They look for the best athlete. They don't care what school you go to. So, um, you know, it's not like if a black player went to a black college. She kind of alluded to that. They'll still get in the NBA, NFL if they're good enough. Um, without a, any, any doubt about it. Um, but a lot of that exposure comes from television. And um, that's where all that money comes from that supports the colleges. And the NCAA has an exclusive contract with all this television. You're not going to ever be able to compete with that. Too much money. It's an association. So many people are in that association. So many corporations. That it's it's no way, um, you know. Now the um, flip side would be if the current black athlete, athletes um, would stop donating to the alumni of the white universities they attended, that already has a plethora of rich donors, boosters, alumni. They got a huge endowment. Not to mention these black athletes probably didn't even graduate from this school, uh, and take that money and donate it toward helping the HM, HBCUs upgrade their academic facilities to be able to compete more 
with the white schools um, as far as STEM, you know, um, science, technology, um, engineering, and and, uh, mathematics and things like that, where the new economy is going. That, to me, would be more um, in line with something I would like to see them do um, instead of Carmelo buying a, giving a $20 million donation to Syracuse for them to build a arena like they really needed his money. And I understand they put his name on it. I don't knock him for doing it. I'm just saying it would have been nice to see that go to, you know, one of the HBCUs who need it. But either way, it's gonna, it's no competition. So I wouldn't even, it's not even something worth having a conversation over. You know, it's not going to never happen. As far as the HSBCUs or HSBUs bringing in the Bahamian students, I think it's way too many black American students who could have used that education right there on where they're at, but it's a noble um, gesture, I guess, for one semester to bring them here um, when they probably are needed where they, where, in where they're at so they can rebuild. But um, yet another storm, sadly, that I would deem as a fake storm, a weather anomaly that shouldn't happen. And even the president came out and he put out a map, and I was looking at the same map. It's called Ventusky, V-E-N-T-U-S-K-Y. That's the website, and you can see the storms forming days in advance and how they travel. And this storm was going to hit Florida, go across, and go into Alabama. I was looking at it for days, calling my mother um, down in Florida, mom, you know, at, at this storm. And the second the president went on the news with that, this thing stopped. And, boy, it was going like about 175 miles an hour and stopped. And then started traveling one mile an hour over the Bahamas and just destroyed it. And they turned it. Then it just went up the coast. And they said, oh, he's an idiot. He's a... I'm not no fool. I know a hurricane is supposed to do that. You can't stop something going that fast. You can't stop a car going that fast and just leave out it just like that. It's just a weather anomaly like a hurricane being over Texas for five days or one that zigzags in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, just stuff that shouldn't happen. You know, a hurricane hit in London a few years ago just shouldn't happen. I mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, I will let you all know once I get information on uh, why the Henrietta Lacks book uh, is at the yoga studio. More details to come. Uh, I engaged in a bit of horseplay myself. I did. I made a note to say that when Irie was sharing about the young children that she uh, had, I I don't want to say dealt, intervened on behalf of uh, previously. And then apparently she was told that they engaged in uh, what they call horseplay later on and, and made the patrons, probably whites, feel unsafe. Uh, I engaged in horseplay as a child. I think it's pretty common. In fact, it seems a lot of adults engage in horseplay. They have no horseplay rules uh, on a number of work sites, apparently. Uh, but I engaged in horseplay as a child. Normally, that's not uh, considered uh criminally threatening, uh, just, you know, being a child and engaging in a little tomfoolery. But I totally understand your concern and hoping that they would kind of heed your warnings and adjust their conduct. Sometimes children, uh, the metaphor, I think, have to learn the hard way. System of racism, white supremacy. Uh, Folks, we missed totally. Uh, If you have a hand up, proceed.
and say, well, folks are waiting to get their uh, hands up, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, with the HBCUs, I had even seen uh, reports where they were saying there had been an increasing number of non-Black students who were attending HBCUs, and they were listing a variety of reasons. It was, you know, cost-effective or, you know, whatever the case is. Uh, but they had just said that uh, in the last few years, in addition to uh, the HBCU struggling and, you know, not having adequate resources. I think they could wait and pull out that report. I think it was Grambling, uh, where they said the, the athletic facilities were really bad and they protested. I think they said they had mold uh, in the athletic facilities. They could pull that out. Like, oh my gosh, you're going to go to one of these, you know, no count schools. My goodness. Like, look at the facilities. We have lots of different ways that that in a system of racism, white supremacy, it's, it's just not, it's just not proud. That's why I said this program is titled the cows. I feel like many conversations, they don't make sense once we acknowledge, oh, we're in a system of racism, white supremacy. Things would have to be discussed in proper context. Dr. Welsing said that the word context was said a number of times uh, in the audio segments today. Context. Sometimes it's it, it can be fun to think about things hypothetically as though we were not confined by the logic, the constraints of white supremacy. Unfortunately, we are. That whole conversation, in my view, it ends abruptly uh, once you, oh yeah, system of white supremacy. Mm. Let's just go about solving uh, the problem. Maybe not even playing football at all. Maybe that would be best under this system. A little less brain damage for the victims. Uh, let's see. Please, uh, can I say one thing about that, please? Yes, sir. Thomas. I had it written down. I'm not excited. Um, with, with the number one group, besides the television affiliated with the NCAA is the major professional sport leagues. So the day that the uh, HSBCUs, all of this stuff did happen and they got all the black players to go there, the professional leagues would just take away the need for going to college. So no longer do you need a college education to play professional sports uh, in all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you see Wilmington on fire? Just asking. She said you were researching uh, the 1898 terrorism. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Excellent film. Christopher Everett. Outstanding work. Outstanding work. Try to promote him when I can. Uh, other folks have uh, questions, uh, comments that they wanted to share. Certainly, if we have any parents, uh, if you have thoughts on the situation with the 14 year old, uh, stay at the same uh, school, relocate. Uh, definitely would appreciate a thought thought there. Folks that we missed totally, uh, if you have thoughts or other folks, if you have uh, suggestions, comments, proceed. Seems like we have other folks with hands up. Maybe they're in a Noisy environment. We'll check back once they get to a space, maybe where they can. Uh, can I be heard in the meantime? Uh, retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I, 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 I think I need to also include a, a remedy for the problem with the 14-year-old 
uh, if it's feasible and possible, uh, that uh, the child will be homeschooled for the rest of their uh, grade school career. Also, with the, the situation with, with Grambling, what you were referring to, Douglas Williams, uh, former MVP of a Super Bowl, who became uh, head football coach at Grambling, which was his alma mater. I played against him in college. Uh, uh, he was fired <laughs> from, his, from the head coaching position because he was attempting to remedy that problem that you were talking about that was at that, uh, that uh, legendary historical black college, Grambling State University. He, he had his own uh, contacts that were attempting to improve the facilities. Uh, that's how, that's the normal shape of the historical quote unquote black colleges, which I say the, the title itself is very deceptive. Uh, these places are not controlled by black people at all. So I don't even know why she even brought that particular, uh, we, we, need, we need six, eight doctors. We need six foot eight doctors. We need, we need uh, 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 quote-unquote black lawyers who can run the 40 in four flat to get from, get to, from you to uh, some sort of means of uh, legal assistance. That's what we need more so than anything. I myself, I wouldn't have, went, I wouldn't have been to the finance to go to college if I hadn't had a quote-unquote athletic scholarship. But outside of that, to talk about some professional sports, I can care less about it at all. And and most of these most of these guys, and I've coached a lot of them. A lot of them are not even interested in going to college to learn something and get a diploma. A lot of them aren't. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we need more. Uh, it is a metaphor, but I'm doing it deliberately just because we did play the clip today. Uh, more Alice Balls, black scientists uh, who will help us solve this problem, uh, thinking in a logical, scientific manner uh, that will, I think, yes, sir. help us get this here problem solved immediately, uh, not just having, you know, more black athletes out on the gridiron getting brain damage. Uh, save that brain yes, computer. Sir. Man, we have got problems to solve much greater than getting a touchdown or scoring two points. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, and with the homeschool uh, situation, that great suggestion. I know for some folks that that, that can be you know a challenge. Uh, that's another one that I know just being here in Washington State where they have a, a comparatively lower number of individuals classified as black, the homeschool options are extraordinary. Like you can tailor the program uh, to make it really specific to meet the needs of your child. Uh, if that includes going to school for maybe one class and then everything else is at home, you can do that. They have all kinds of resources so that they still get the social interaction. It is amazing uh, how just... <sighs> The experience that you can have for your child in the state of Washington, if you want to do homeschooling, that would not be available to you if you lived in a state that has a higher population of black people. Anywho, uh, other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have a hand up, if you have comments, uh, questions to share, proceed. Yeah. 
Hi, everyone. This is Missy, and non-Clemson grad is here as well. Um, I wanted to call this in really quick. Um, I wrote an email to Gus, but I was like, oh, yeah, I can call my cell phone. <laughs> um, but I wanted to make a comment on the vape, the vaping report. Um I remember being in Washington, D.C. back in 2014. I was there for, like, a, a summer summer program. And there were a lot of, like, young white people who were vaping. They had just started vaping. And they were trying to, like, spread the word and be like, oh, yeah, you want to try it? You want to puff? All this kind of stuff. And they were very proud about vaping inside of the subways. Um, they would, while we were waiting for the trains to arrive, they would blow smoke into each other's faces or um, make the little uh, circles, smoke circles in the air. And then um, on the non-peak hours in the evening, um, when there were fewer riders coming from certain parts of the city, um, they would file into the train cabins and then, you know, puff, puff, puff and fill up the entire train cabin full of the smoke. Um, and the way that the vaping was marketed to young people and to people who may have been smoking tobacco, um, like cigarettes or cigars, um, they, they would market vaping as a safe alternative to tobacco. Um, and then another angle that they would position um, or encourage people to switch to vaping or to at least try it was to bypass some of the legislation that businesses or different public places adopted um, to have some of these places be completely tobacco free. So it was a good way to say, hey, I'm not smoking something tobacco, full of tobacco. I can still get my nicotine. Um, and I can smoke indoors without harming anybody else around me with the second or third, third hand smoke. Um, but I, I also recall back in 2014, 2015, when vaping became the rage, there were plenty of reports that came out warning users of the potentially long-term health impact of vaping. And a lot of people said it was unfounded. Um, as mentioned in the report in some of the comments, that um, because they haven't researched or done a lot of analysis or studies on the effects of vaping, um, you know, they a lot of people were saying that the reports were unfounded. But um, just to keep this in perspective, like when you're vaping, in order to use the device and um, inhale the nicotine and the flavor of the nicotine. The device itself, it has to heat up and there's metal coils inside that have to heat up to heat the liquid nitrogen. And then when you inhale and exhale, it turns it into the liquid nitrogen into the smoke. Um, in the smoke, you'll see at different parties and stuff, it's like that, that liquid ice that you'll see maybe at Halloween um, that, that creates these cool effects at concerts and stuff. It's very, very similar to that. It's liquid nitrogen. Um, 
But as the user inhales the flavor, the nicotine, the liquid compound, they're also inhaling toxic heavy metals. And some of the heavy metals that are very toxic to you um, that we know in large concentrations are negatively impact our bodies as humans. You have like aluminum, nickel, arsenic, lead, manganese, chromium, and other other metals that you can look up. So what I like to remind everybody is sobriety is best. And when when these businesses they try to market to us, um, either through billboards or magazine spreads or television or even using young, attractive, healthy looking white people. Um, they're, they're trying to make money. Uh, the dominant society is trying to make money and they'll heavily target non-white people um, because there's so much money to extract from non-white people. So the dominant society, it's just, it's just a, it's a great money-making cycle. They will create a problem, in this case, a health crisis. So they'll make money through creating the problem and selling us, in this case, the vaping alternative to tobacco. They'll make money by researching, analyzing the problem, or holding conferences and publishing reports and papers and they also make money selling the solution back to us. And with that, I will conclude. Much obliged, Miss C. Hope everyone is doing well in South Carolina, non-Clemson grad as well. Uh, the vaping, they are so slick. Uh, I remember all the promotion. I remember that exactly here in Washington State, even before they legalized uh, cannabis. I remember the, the vaping, uh, the e-cigarettes and all the nicotine vaporizers that they had. And uh, it was amazing. Uh, it just seemed in, in a matter of days, it seemed uh, all of the young whites had them. When I say young whites, like uh, high school students uh, had them. You would just see them out all the time um, in restaurants, in restaurants. I can't emphasize that enough because you can't even smoke. Uh, like a cigarette uh, in a restaurant, but they had their vape devices uh, in restaurants uh, using them. And, you know, at the, I think she said uh, on the train and, you know, public transportation and just out in public and all over the place. It's been extraordinary. And then you add in that because they were talking about uh, both the <clears throat> e-cigarette and THC vaporizers, both uh, and saying that they don't know and it hasn't been studied and you know this is a concern and maybe people shouldn't be doing this at all maybe this is not a healthier uh alternative all of that that moron uh says i think it was just repeated sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy absolutely uh other folks that we missed totally uh if you have a hand up comment question you want to make sure you share Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, uh, listeners and callers. I wanted to um, uh, share part of part of my um, 
part of my viewpoint on the the uh, 14 year old who's being subjected to terrorism. Um, I agree. Like I said um, the homeschooling is a great alternative. I, I like that idea. But not notwithstanding that, because I believe you said that she already committed to a scholarship, so it would take a um, a parent like that. As, as a parent, I, I think I would. As an attempted parent, I think I would uh, sit down and try to best prepare my child to um, um, be subjected to terrorism and try to get them codified and sit with them and read some of the um, suggestions by Mr. Fuller and actually have them listen to some of the, some of the programs. And that could be a, a definitely a learning experience. Um, I, I intend to do that because I'm going to visit my children, so well, my grandchildren uh, shortly. So it's part of my um, my continued codification to have them being prepared. So I think sh short of removing him from that environment would be to best prepare him to be able to respond logically and unemotionally so he doesn't put himself in further jeopardy. Um, and I'll meet my line with that. Thank you. Uh, this is a 14-year-old young lady uh, that we were discussing, but the logic would be the same. Uh, the logic would be the same. Uh, much obliged uh, for the suggestion, sir. Uh, if we have any other parents, try not to be a spectator if you have thoughts on how you would handle that situation. Uh, homes got another vote for homeschooling as well. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, if we have missed you totally and you have commentary to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. check in see if uh some of the other folks who still have a hand up that we missed will check in again see if we miss them uh other folks if you all have any other comments questions uh remarks you want to make sure you get in uh i did neglect to include a report uh it was a uh, black male he was attacked uh by three white men and this is a younger uh black male i think he was you know a teen uh, and they called him a nigger and all the rest of it. Uh, just again, uh, to emphasize the importance uh, being alert, that is kind of connected or not kind of directly connected to sobriety would be best because we are under conditions of terrorism. And there have been so many incidents uh, of just random violence just to be alert, uh, to be aware of things that are happening uh, so that we can kind of recognize uh, when danger might be increased. Uh, we might need to take uh, evasive action. It is super important to just be uh, aware of your environment. Have these conversations with your children. I said this was a, a younger uh, black male. Have these conversations so that they can be aware. I know I've seen uh, a number of reports of black uh, children, males and females, boys and girls uh, being uh, attacked, sometimes even shot at on the way to school or home from school. So as the previous caller just stated, uh, be having these conversations with your offspring if they are going uh, to public school or whatever it is. Be having these conversations and make sure they have a code uh, in terms of 
what to do if something should happen if they're in transit, what to, to do if something should happen in the classroom, student, whatever it is, uh, and repeat these conversations. This is not a one-time thing. This is regular dialogue, checking in with them. A lot of work being an attempted parent. Uh, school year just started. Use all of this as motivation to make sure you are talking to your child. What's the code? Someone calls you a nigger. This is the code, and we can practice that so it'll be really natural. They've already rehearsed this. They know what to do. They know how you have instructed them to behave. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, have comments, thoughts, questions uh, they want to share. Can I be heard? Uh, Mr. M. Hondisi. Yes, sir. I had to hang up because I was trying to record the airplanes that drew an X over the moon. Apparently, the moon is reflecting too much heat tonight. Um, but, oh, chemtrails. White people are going to continue to spray chemtrails until white supremacy ends, I think. But we should do our best to make sure white people have a hard time spraying these chemtrails by whatever the process is, um, speaking to politicians or whoever makes the rules, white people. But um, I remembered Bilderberg Conference, Bilderberg Conference. And I don't even know what that even is, really. But that's the, the word I had said that the two words I had said um, maybe a few weeks ago that was omitted um, from um, the live broadcast. Um, but yeah, I don't even know. Um, but I read that Bill Gates is involved in that conference and it has to do with depopulation. However, whenever I was mentioning that particular Bilderberg conference, I, that, that's not even what I was meaning to say. Um, I, I meant to say it was, a, it was another speech that Bill Gates had given, a public speech that Bill Gates had given, where if you just listen to what he said, he was basically saying that in order to lower the temperature of the planet, white people have to kill a certain number of black people to accomplish um, lowering the temperature. And so uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was with the um, shootings that I, I had mentioned before, um, I mean, they've, they've decreased and they decrease, especially, you know, when, when people are looking around, but like, I don't know. It's it's just there's somebody there's a group of people going around terrorizing this neighborhood, and it's like I think it's the it, I think there's a, a there's I'm starting to understand the dynamic more, but um, I've all I've 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 thought this. There's a group of black people even that is going around and doing killings and getting a, getting away with it. But the reason they even get away with it is because the police won't stop them. Even when the shooting happened around my house, it was, this guy was shooting down, down two blocks early in the morning, um, past houses, 
um, the time that children go to the bus stop and nobody stepped out of the house to see, you know, the car, but I, you know, I went and tried to figure out what it was, but, um, the police, they got called and they didn't respond immediately. I mean, they, they answered the phone and whatever, but they didn't come to the scene. They, if they had come soon, they could have even found the car. You know, if they had sent maybe three cars, like whenever they, they when I see them stop somebody on the side of the road, they'll have 10 cars for some black person who you can't even figure out what the violation was. But they couldn't send anybody out to this shooting that happened beside my house. And they're on, they're in, I can walk faster. I can walk to, I can walk to where they are because they're stationed close to me. I can walk to the police station and back before the time they even got to the, um, um, to, to the scene. And it was even longer than that. It was like a ridiculous amount of time. It had to have been like 15 minutes or something, you know, or longer. It was a ridiculous amount of time. And so, <clears throat> excuse me for yelling, but yeah, it's, it's, um, something that needs to be dealt with. Thank you. M. Hondisi, uh, that is consistent, uh, with regards to at times when it benefits the system of racism, uh, racists will not intervene. Uh, they will monsters and monstrosities said that before, uh, they will produce non-white people that they control, terrorize and dominate. Uh, they will produce individuals who behave in this manner. Uh, and then sometimes they'll just stand back and do nothing about it. Uh, you can see that on a global scale. They brag about Rwanda almost on a regular basis. Uh, the same thing happening there. And yep. Bill Clinton, president at the time, we sat and watched and let them slaughter each other uh, by the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and they do this on a small scale uh, sometimes. We'll just sit back, let the black people kill each other. Maybe we intervene. Maybe we don't. You drive down the street and forget your license, we'll call 20 enforcement officials uh, to come out for that infraction. System of racism, white supremacy, local, national, global. Uh other folks, uh, and it is straight, it's designed. Uh, the amount, the, the stress that we heard from Imhan DC, that is a part of the design uh, to have black people stressed, uh, to impact uh, your health uh, and, and being on edge. I think that even explains to some degree some of the responses where the people were on edge and angry uh, when you're stressed and you have violence happening uh, on a mass scale to black people all around you and nothing is done about it. That creates people uh, who are functioning with uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. You can't even call it post because it's current. Uh, just uh, white supremacy stress reactions uh, to the things that are happening in their environment. Uh, other folks uh, dialed in. Uh, suggestions, questions that they wanted to share? Can I be heard again? Uh, retired firefighter? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I... I uh, need to include uh, that uh, DCS mentoring program uh, has had their annual parent meeting, uh, which precedes the uh, another session, uh, which would take place in the latter part of this month. Uh, these are the type of uh, programs uh, 
that could assist uh, attempted non-white black parents with their black male children uh, to assist them in what way? To assist them in the way of uh, building so that individual can build and build a, a format of what am I, uh, what's the purpose of a high school diploma? Uh, what do I need? What do I uh, go to college for? Or some other sort of training, uh, that sort of thing. Something that would accentuate more than just playing a sport. Uh, it can assist a, a parent in so. Uh, also, what I have always done through coaching is to follow through with the, with the young people that I have uh, been in their company with, with a whistle, is more than that. I stay with them and contact them, those the ones who have went to college, uh, as far as to keep reinforcing uh, the, uh, the idea of having a plan uh, uh, and uh, also to have a counter-racist <laughs> plan also, which I am uh, unfortunately unique at as far as coaching is concerned down here in South Florida. A matter of fact, uh, one of one of the uh, well, they call me all the time, but uh, I was called uh, last night. A uh, young fellow who uh, I coached uh, uh, about uh, he went to he went to University of Louisville. Uh, and finish with a degree, but he also, at the same time, he's a realtor, and he uh, has the interest of becoming a firefighter. And uh, he was calling me on that because he already has been taking himself through the training, that sort of thing. These are some of the things uh, as far as what what young people need. And I would say sports can be a a facilitator, an assistance to that. If that that uh, the persons who are involved with it are, uh, have that know-how and interest to want to uh, be able to uh, use that platform for that purpose, which I do think is paramount, and uh, I try to uh, do that, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Things greater than scoring a touchdown. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, with questions, uh, suggestions, comments they wanted to make sure uh, they share before we wrap things up. Can I be heard? Uh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, the Bilderberg Group um, set up are very powerful um, German Nazis who were raided being arrested for war crimes um, by um, being allowed to move to the Netherlands and change their name. Um, but they set up the Bilderberg Group in 1956, and several um, U.S. you know people go there every year, set certain agendas um, corporately, and you know all around world government. They they have a very exclusive group of people. That's it, you know, governmental positions, um, even black people have gone and been part of this group, um, but very powerful, um, secret society type group. Um, all the white universities on major television 
playing college sports have, um, first and foremost, world-class academic facilities, classrooms, and labs. Sports come second. Um, in fact, the colleges that the white supremacists, they are their elite schools, you almost never see them glamorized in modern times as great athletic schools like um, Harvard and Princeton and Yale and those schools, you, you you won't see them on um, playing um, on Saturday football, you know, or um, in, in the Sweet 16 um, because they're white people are more, first and foremost um, concerned with being academically um, superior, you know, knowing more than everyone else. That's they. That's how they stay in power. And um, HS, HBCUs, instead of worrying about sports, they need to worry about getting equal academically to those schools. Uh, I think that would be the number one focus they should be worried about. Uh, the NBA players, um, I hate to keep it on sports, guys, but um, I get very disappointed um, when um, I see uh, one thing that black people are allowed to do in a system of white supremacy um, and do it well, better than white people, is play sports. And um, we turn around and lose to another country. Uh, but uh, this is something I saw coming. Uh, I think I mentioned on the show before, they were changing basketball um, to allow these white supremacists to be able to be a part of the NBA league. So now all the jump shooting, three-point shots, changing the way it's played, no inside, no athleticism, that in the places where we used to dominate, if you play that way, you don't even get a chance. You know, you have to be able to shoot a jump shot and get back and play defense, and that's about it. So I think that um, you're seeing that um, the result of that, finally, after about 20 years, um, they can't even win in the Olympics. Um, so, or in the world setting against players who are playing that style of ball. You just got to catch, shoot, and get back and play defense. And that's never been our strong point, um, what, what made the NBA what it is. So I think that um, in the next five to ten years, you're going to see about 50% of the league going to be non-American whites or um, just non-American, non-black people, I should say. Can I be one line, Gus? We shall see. We shall see. Uh, last few minutes uh, in the broadcast, folks have any other remaining comments uh, they want to make sure that they share. I think, not that I'm encouraging uh, film watching, but I think the film on Harriet Tubman is about to come out sometime soon. Uh, the Toronto International Film Festival was this week, and I think it screened there. Uh, and I am told it got good reviews. Obviously, I wasn't there. Uh, but I think that should be coming out. I've said for a long time, I don't do uh, slave pictures, and this would be another one. So I'm not going to watch this. Uh, but that might be something to be just mindful uh, if people are talking about it or asking you, have you seen it? If you start seeing the previews and such for it, uh, it might be constructive. It might be great. I'm sure there are a lot of non-white, especially younger people. We've been talking about that. I am sure there are a lot of 14-year-old uh, black boys and girls who do not know who Harriet Tubman is 
or who have a very uh, limited understanding of her, probably even a lot of older uh, black boys and girls uh, who that would also apply. So I'm sure it would be helpful in some respect, but I'm very accustomed to the system of white supremacy and producing uh, what I would term just racial pornography and producing these sort of films, Roots. Uh, it's a lot of them. Uh, I could go through the list. Even I would put uh, The Help. Uh, there are a lot of books and films of this nature. They enjoy reminiscing about the good old days on the plantation. Make America great again. Ah, yes. We had impunity to lash a nigra from sunup to sundown. Mm. Oh, well, at least we can watch a film and see it. Uh, we can rewind it, watch it in slow-mo. I think I've, I've written about that. We've talked about that, making a spectacle uh, of terrorizing black people. That I've just concluded that that's all of these type of efforts, film efforts. But Harriet is supposed to be out. Uh, I guess if you hear or see about it, you can let us know if you think it's constructive. Uh, any other uh, comments, questions, suggestions? I see this, this Harriet Tubman movie, guys. Um trying not to use a metaphor a trap um well it's 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 setting us up i hope that's not a metaphor but um they already told us like last year two years ago that they was coming out with harriet tubman 10 or 20 dollar bills so they're going to build her up in this movie and of course if the white supremacists likely i wouldn't think it's going to be that destructive if, they, if this was constructed, they would say this was the worst movie ever. Or this is this would not be going to movie theaters. But they're gonna build her up just in one day to have a rapper throwing some Harriet Tubman bills at a stripper. I could see it happening, and I, I just uh, the master plan of white people. It, just the the visual of that. I mean, I, I could just see that being what they're doing. Always suspicious. Uh, I first heard about the project some years back, and I'm not sure if I had my code about, you know, I do not view uh, these type of films, but it is uh, staunchly in place now. And yeah, I would just expect that this will be used in some sort of way. Even when Nate Parker's project comes out, he's going to show Nat Turner, and then that just turns into a whole cowbell. He's a rapist. And they got lots of schemes. Uh, any other comments, questions, suggestions? Can I be heard? Greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I had to, uh, I was uh, tending to some some uh, things I was trying to get done. I, I was going to speak earlier, but because uh, I had a, it was a story that was on the news uh, earlier this week. It looks like it was a, a black male up in Tallahassee, I guess, who uh, stabbed um, five people in the workplace. Um, I was trying to look into the story to see if it was in response to workplace racism, but the article that I found uh, says that the person or that he wigged out and they got it in quotes. Uh, and it was saying that he was in good spirits before he got to work. Um, he, and he clocked in and it said that on the article that he overheard some supervisors speaking in code. And I said, really, they, they have speaking in code in the article. So they, I guess, got into some altercation 
the supervisors and uh his name is Antoine Brown, he's forty one. Um and he was asked to clock out at like eight twenty or something like that. And I guess they saw him going for his pocket or something and they asked him to leave. Uh and I guess in the aftermath or after the uh incident, uh he said that he saw demons and certain people that he stabbed because it said that uh he hold up said the persons he stabbed had wronged either him or previous employees. So, uh, in my opinion, I'm wondering if that has something to do with racism when, uh, especially when you have victims that are confused and I guess he used the term, had, uh, they had wronged him in previous employees. So I wonder if that was about racism. Um, had anybody heard about that story? I had not. I am reading it now, the details uh, from CNN uh, about the the stabbing uh, that took place. But this report doesn't say anything uh, either about if racism was an issue and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it doesn't. I would I would be suspicious anytime a black person in a workplace setting and they're saying that they had grievances and what have you, because it just seems like so frequently racism is uh, a part of, you know, what has taken place. Uh, but yeah, I did not know about this incident. Yeah. So, uh, that was a, a interesting one that really, um, got my attention focused on it. And one last thing I just wanted to, uh, really, uh, compliment the style of this broadcast, like the, the way that people are allowed to speak and give their viewpoints. It really teaches me just to speak on my own individualist experience is thought provoking and uh i get to learn more and i get to hear different viewpoints and opinions and usually like on a lot of not just television broadcasts like radio broadcasts you hear a lot of people speaking and then you hear background music but with this it's, it's definitely uh it stands out in my opinion and uh, you know i just wanted to compliment you and the other callers on that and that's all i have for now thanks for allowing me to share much obliged. Uh, hope it is worthy of folks' time and energy, and uh, even more importantly, hope it is uh, contributing to us being able to solve the problem immediately. Uh, I'm looking at one other <clears throat> report. This is the uh, Tallahassee Democrat about this incident with uh, Antoine D. Brown, the alleged uh, perpetrator in this stabbing down in uh, Florida. Uh, and they said that, let's see, oh, potential termination. Let's see. Let's see. Hmm. Let's see. I think they're saying that he had a history of run-ins with enforcement officials uh but this is just kind of going over details of the attack and all of that the only reason i clicked on it was to see if they were gonna give more details and say that let's see yeah it doesn't give out the details the title was misleading uh yeah see the title says suspect in spontaneous tallahassee workplace attack had string of run-ins with the law but then it doesn't give any details about these run-ins with the law unless i missed them but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see them. 
anyway, uh, yeah, I don't see any of the details about these run-ins uh, with the law. Uh, yeah, with that, uh, did we miss anybody? Anything you can get in in 30 seconds or less before we wrap things up? Ryan on. I assume folks uh, are satisfied. Uh, I'm still kind of stuck in my craw. Our, our listener who dialed in and was trying to get information to deal with the problem being uh, banned from the lactation room uh, on her job uh, still kind of messed with me in trying to get about some, some more helpful solutions, even though she did write back and say that what she heard was helpful. Uh, so I am trying to see if we can get uh, Black guests specifically who deal with that uh, and trying to get assistance uh, with breastfeeding while you're working and some of the common problems, because uh, that's something I just, as a non-parent, not a mom either, uh, something I just hadn't thought about. Uh, but we're going to try and see if we can get that uh, set up as well. Uh, you can drop an email if you have questions, uh, need information uh, about the Cows Yoga Retreat uh, for Florida, December 28th to January 1. Hopefully there will be no hurricanes by the end of December, so we can be there safely, enjoy some sunshine, some excellent veggie food, maybe not be, uh, vegan peach cobbler, but something tasty, many things tasty, hopefully. Do some yoga and discuss counter-racism, how we can go about solving the problem. Until justice at gmail.com, if you have questions, uh, need more information, much obliged to all the folks who participated. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, check Black Talk Radio uh, Network and our Facebook group uh, for details on our next broadcast when we back on this week. Uh, the iTunes uh, is still allowing me to upload. I think I have all of the broadcasts from the 2019 calendar year have been uploaded to iTunes. Uh, now I'm just working on making sure that everything is uploaded from where the problem began in the summer of 2018. So hopefully we'll be able to go back and uh, get iTunes totally uh, updated. I know that makes it easier for some listeners to access the content. So if you're looking for any of the most recent content, 2019 should be available via iTunes. Uh, with that, I get to say it again. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy for a myriad of reasons. I don't think vaping, coconut flavor, apple flavor, sour apple, menthol, anything, I don't think that uh, alcoholic beverages, cigarettes, even the tobacco, I don't think any of that uh, has helped us in this problem. I don't think any of that is going to help us end this problem. Let's keep our brain computers working at maximum efficiency to crank out new concepts, permanent solutions to the problem, the system of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger, and let's make sure we are not on the cell phone when we are driving. Uh, let's do even the little things uh, that can help keep us a little bit safer, uh, and out of the clutches of Daniel Pantaleo, Daniel Holtzclaw, and all of the rest under this system. 
That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Help us demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.